I had a moment where I, I, I almost, almost, almost brought me to tears. To get that call, to be invited, to be told, and to, to, to hear it as it was unfolding. It's going to be seven episodes. It's the mayor of this small town. And I remember hearing about Midnight Mass three years ago when we were at a barbecue. And I told you, you know, Mike used to come over for dinner. Trevor was here. And I remember we were sitting there flipping a salmon on the, on the barbecue. And they were telling me the story of this young priest who shows up. He had had the idea, and now it was it's come to fruition, and here they were asking me to come and join the show. It drew tears. I was like, I was so overwhelmed. I was walking my dogs at the time. I'll never forget it. I was up in this cul-de-sac, and I walked in the house and looked at my wife, and I was like, honey, I just, I just, I don't even, I couldn't even process. I remember just like, what just happened? So yeah, that was the culmination of a dream come true. I mean, I, I, I don't want to, you know, put too fine a point on that or, or, or hit that too, nail too hard on the head, but I'd be lying to say that's not a dream come true. Welcome to Spill Your Guts. I'm your host, Kevin Lane. Today we're talking to one of the great chameleon actors. You've probably heard that term before when it comes to actors. Daniel Day-Lewis, John Turturro, Sam Rockwell, and maybe the most versatile of performers in show business, Gary Oldman. The chameleon actor has the uncanny ability to play both leading man or supporting actor with the same degree of immersive skill. They are usually very different in every role because whereas some actors are hired to bring their persona, think Jack Nicholson or Tom Cruise, these actors mold and sculpt all aspects of themselves to create a character. I first saw this actor in the groundbreaking 2004 series Battlestar Galactica. In the role of Anders, he was strong and stoic while also raw and vulnerable and a balancing act few actors could achieve. And that's continued to be the trajectory of Michael Trucco ever since. You've seen him on countless network series such as The Male Lead in Fairly Legal, reoccurring roles on shows like How I Met Your Mother, Revenge, and Castle, and many, many more. Never the same, but always at the top of his game. In the world of horror, Michael first appeared in Wishmaster 4 in a scene-stealing role as the film's villain. But it was when he was cast in genre master Mike Flanagan's Hush that Michael really cemented himself as a genre favorite. Now a regular in Flanagan's ensemble of actors, you have got to see Michael in Midnight Mass. I'm guessing you've already seen Midnight Mass because who didn't watch it? It's a darkly beautiful series full of big questions and imagery that stays with you long after you've finished watching. Michael's role as the town's mayor, Wade Scarborough, is a stunning performance. I watched Michael on this show and I couldn't stop admiring the transformation that he had made. This guy didn't just look and sound completely different from Michael, he felt like a completely different person. His mannerisms and his rhythms were all so different than Michael's. I love Michael's work on Midnight Mass. In our talk, we discuss in detail his ongoing work with Mike Flanagan, including his role in the highly anticipated The Fall of the House of Usher. I should mention this conversation was recorded before the highly publicized removal of Frank Langella from the series. We also talk about working with Doug Jones in the underrated monster movie, The Bye Bye Man. Michael and I made a film together in 2009, and we talk about my inability to accept the idea that he said yes to the part in a very Canadian moment for me. I should also mention that you will notice throughout this conversation that it might be a little looser than some of our other episodes. Michael has become a good friend since our work together in 2009, 
So this time together allowed us not just the opportunity to talk about his work, but also to throw back a few drinks and just hang out together. Michael's an incredibly kind and fun person, and he's always a joy to be around. So, fix yourself your beverage of choice, and let's get into all things Michael Truco. Hi, Michael. Hi, Kevin Lane. How are you? I'm good, man. Good to see you again. It's very good to see you. Thank you for doing this, by the way. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. We're going to go 2002. Uh, first horror movie, Wishmaster 4. <laughs> yes. Wishmaster 4. Yes. So, Wishmaster 4 comes up. I'm going to assume again, did you, you audition for Wishmaster 4? I did. Stuff? I did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Any trepidation about coming in on part four of like a relatively like, you know, not a big horror franchise, directed video, you know, you probably had a sense like, okay, this isn't going to be the game changer. Like any trepidation where you're like, do I even want to do this? Like, was that, was that ever at play for you? Or were you just like, work is work? I'll say this. First of all, if you haven't seen Wishmasters 1, 2, and 3, it's going to be really hard to follow 4. It's really quite, <laughs> quite, quite the narrative. Uh, no. It, you know when you get, when you you know you know when you're facing something with with the number four behind the title that okay this thing is probably a little long in the tooth and um, they're certainly not connected to the original. The trepidation, uh, Kevin, yeah, it, it was there. But look, we all have our angles. Mine was this was a chance for me to get my dip my feet into the, the pool of film because I had been doing a lot of television. Um, you got to put everything in the context, the context of 2002 when still film was, was the, that was the golden, that was the, the goose with the golden egg. You know, television was always considered sort of a, mm, and film was where it was at. So a big, a big ghetto eyes still yeah, at that point. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. funny now that the yeah. two worlds have completely cross-pollinated. Not and the actually, case, yeah. yeah. now it's like, you know, back in those days, it was like, man, I just want to do a movie. And I was like, well, I'm doing this show. And we would go, oh, well, you know, good for you, buddy. Oh, that's cute. You know, pat you on the head. You're doing TV. One day, maybe you'll get film. Now it feels like it's the other way around. Like, oh, all I can do is movies. I really want to get into a good TV series. So back then, I wanted to, I wanted to, I felt like I just couldn't crack that nut. A couple of independent films at that point, but I wanted to do something. And this was a legitimate franchise movie. I mean, it was a real title. You know, it had seen theatrical release at some point. I wasn't dumb. I knew this was theatrical. This was straight to video. But it was for a lead role. So those are the things you're looking for as an actor, the trade-off. Yeah, it wasn't a prestige product project but i knew i'll go in on this it's you know it's going to be one of the leads um it, it is something to put on the resume that wishmaster for i mean it, you know it's a it's a franchise horror film so you go you know and i was young again and you just you go in you go in for the audition let's see what happens i went in and i got uh, had great rapport with the director at the time uh, the casting director, and I knew that this was going well. And then when they called a couple of days later to make the offer, it was kind of a no-brainer. You know, I mean, what else was I going to do? I, you know, I, I needed the experience. And then they go, and it shoots in Winnipeg. I was like, oh, <laughs> it's like Winnipeg can be brutal. Um, Glamorous. Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. It was, wasn't like, you know, and you're going to go to Prague <laughs> yeah. or you're going to Rome. No, you're going to Winterpeg. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, you know, yeah. again, I wasn't in a position at that point in my career to really make choice. You know, that it was always funny when you do press for stuff and they go, so, you know, how did you, um, 
you know, what, what led you to take this role? It's like, because I got hired. That's what, it, you know, it's like, I didn't exactly get to pick and choose. It was a job. Back then. It was a job. Yeah, exactly. it was a job. And, you know, you're an actor, you audition. And if you audition, you audition for everything. And if, if, you know, you just, you throw the spaghetti at the wall and you see what sticks and this one stuck. And I wasn't in any position to turn down work at that point in my career. So Wishmaster 4 or not, you know, it wasn't um, Nightmare on Elm Street. It was it was what it was. And I knew it was low budget. And uh, the director, you know, he also didn't make any allusion to the fact that this was low budget. And, and this is what, you know, look, man, we were shooting scenes. We, we didn't have money for lights to shoot nighttime exteriors. So all the scary stuff in the movie was all <laughs> shot in the middle of the day. You know, 2 o'clock in the afternoon in an alley behind the strip club in Winnipeg. We're doing the scene that should have been way scarier if it had been shot at night with mist and backlit, you know, nope, we got to shoot in the day. So I knew yeah. what I was getting into, but again, it was just another, um, you know, another notch in the belt. You want to put something on the resume. I was building a brand. So you take work, you know, it's that thing you were talking about the British or so they're so good at They're like work is work, you know, a job is a job. And so yeah, you do your job. Yeah, and when I read the script, um, you know, the djinn, the, the the lead character, the monster in, in this film, he takes the on the genie. Yeah, 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 yeah. They call him the djinn, the DJ. DJ. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've seen them all. Yeah, I've seen so them all. I've seen he, one through four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He takes on the persona. He takes on a human form, and I was the character that he becomes. So. That was exciting. You have the one fun part in the whole movie. Exactly. So I play the yeah. Yeah. So I play sort of the 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 nebbish, you know, good-hearted, almost nerdy lawyer in the beginning of the film, and then I'm killed by the monster, and he cuts my face off and fuses my face, and he becomes this new guy, and you know, and then all of a sudden the persona changed, and I remember they said your suits are going to go from like super soft, easy, generic suits to like dark, hard colors, red tie, you're going to, you know, you're going to see this transformation and this newfound character, this confidence. And I was like, that's exciting. So I get, I get to play the the villain, you know, I got to play the monster in a human form and, and, and it was a fun role, you know? So after Wishmaster 4, uh, there's this little thing that you did called Battlestar Galactica. Was that what followed Wishmaster 4? Well, in our chronology. I'm okay. sure there was other yeah. things in between there. It's quite but a joke. This is, we're we're kind of hitting the highlights, right? Okay. This is, plus, the genre nature of this podcast. Uh, you know, Battlestar doesn't quite fit. It's not a horror show or a horror. But, 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 but we, I was like, you know, I thought it was important to kind of, and, and it declared a way for the, the Battlestar fans that find their way to this podcast to say, if you're here for Battlestar, Michael Truco, Anders Tidbits, stop right now. It's not worth this isn't the place for it. There's tons of there's tons of great Battlestar podcasts. I've listened to some of them. You know, you might you might know some. Is there one you would recommend, Michael, for pod for, for, for Battlestar well, I mean the one that I did I think once or twice was with Trisha Helfer's uh podcast right. with Mark Renardin. Yeah. And I believe that was called uh Battlestar Galacticast. And Folks. Go listen that's, to that. Yeah, that's, I mean, yeah. that's the, to me, that's the definitive, you know, um, that's the authoritative podcast because I think she broke down every single episode. She, she and did, Mark. and she brought on, like, you Great know, every, stars, yeah. all kinds of you guys who were on the show. And, um, you know, so it's, yeah, for, for you Battlestar fans. That would be the one I would direct you to, yeah. If you want, like, a direct... I'm sure there's probably hundreds of great Battlestar podcasts from different perspectives and, you know, from uh, uh, different folks who've got, you know, who may not be associated with the show but were fans of the show and break it down from it. But if you want to get a 
first person perspective podcast, right from Trisha Helfer, that'd be the one to go to. Yeah. I mean, they can hear all about how you ended up in a tub of slime and stuff, but we're not, exactly. we're not doing that here. We're not doing we're not that, getting that right now. One thing I thought was, would be worth sort of talking about, uh, you know, before we fully move on from Battlestar was, uh, um, the Battlestar was like, a sh- was a show that you did that was like very much an ensemble show, right? Like it wasn't, it wasn't about one guy or one gal. And then there's the supporting people, totally an ensemble, which you would then go on to do, you know, very much on Midnight Mass, same kind of thing, right? Um, uh, do you like, do you, for you as an actor, like being in an ensemble shows, like is that, do you, do you think it's, there's something really, I would imagine there's there's a real sense of camaraderie that comes with you get a group of people together all working towards this thing and you can support each other and you're all working together and like you know and when it clicks that that you know that that's an amazing thing. Adversely, if it doesn't work, then that would be probably uh, a lot less pleasant. But you've been fortunate now to be on two shows that were very much ensemble shows where it worked. Yeah, you know, I would for for me personally, that's the dream scenario is the ensemble, the large ensemble. Yeah, you know, the series, and and for a number of reasons, the ones that you just mentioned are are spot on. That you build a camaraderie with a cast in which you feel like everyone is on par, but also just from a standpoint that the division of labor is is broken up nicely. You know, everybody gets a suitable amount of time. You know, um, I work on a lot of shows with my friend Nathan Fillion is a good example. And, you know, Nathan has been on Castle and now he's doing The Rookie. And, you know, he's the central number one callback. That show is about him. And then there's everybody else kind of fills in and they've got great ensemble cast. But that's a lot of work. That's a lot of work. And, and you know, I can testify to his, you know, that he has stated many times. He's like, man, that's just and it's 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 eased a bit on The Rookie. But when he was doing Castle, like when you're in every setup, of every shot, of every episode, of every scene, you're like, man, I just need, can we just shoot somebody else? So when you work on a large ensemble piece, everybody gets a little bit of a time off because everybody's storyline is getting equal equal airtime. Do you know the actress Judy Greer? Yeah, of course. Yeah, Judy Greer said this great thing. I was listening uh, to to an interview she was here. She was talking about, you know, part a big thing about her career is that she's, she's, she said, I've never, I've never, I'm never number one on the call sheet. And she's like, that's the way I want it. And yeah. she said, because when you're number one on the call sheet, what a lot of people understand is that means you're probably there every day, all day. Absolutely. So she said, you know, for me, when we travel to cool places, I get to go off and check out the museums. But the number one guy, he's not going anywhere. You know, that's so right. these people get to go to these places but they're just there all the time. And she was like, I love being number three or four on the call. She's exactly where I want to be. That's and right. I thought that was very, you know, that's, that's, I, I think people probably might not realize that some actors don't want to be number one on the call. Sheet. They don't. Want, yeah. And exactly. And it's funny. There's, you know, there's, that's two sides of the same coin because as somebody who said, you know, yeah, you're spending everything on set. That's also your face on the, on the posters and on the billboards all over town. So, you know, that's the trade is, is it's not a terrible thing. Um, in either way, and, and I think I've said it many times, I'm ready for, I would love to take on a show. I'd love to take that, that number one position and, and have my own castle or something like that. And it's that be careful what you wish for scenario because it is a lot of work. And then you go, oh, what did I, what did I wish for? But the idea of, of feeling the need to, to earn a vacation, to really go, I just want to take the next two months off. I don't want to do a little indie film on the side. I just want to go on hiatus and, you know, download, decompress. That's attractive to me. But I think the the dream scenario. I say that because I, you know, I haven't had. I've had. I've been 
the number one on, on a show legal. on a pilot. Yeah, fairly legal stuff. But yeah, that was like number two. And then I did a pilot called The Man of Your Dreams, which had it gone, that would have been one of, you know, every shot, every scene, every, and, and it was a little bit daunting at the time when, I, when they said that the pilot wasn't picked up. Part of me was a little bit relieved, actually, which was weird. I was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> so I think, the, I think the Battlestar scenario, the um, working for Flanagan, you know, in that Flanniverse, they call it uh, this big repertory theater company where you all just fill in, you know, they just plug you in and, and, and you're part of this ensemble cast. Is a great, it's a great um, working environment, and I'm, I'm very lucky. You know, like, because I think as an actor, part of what's scary to me about the job of an actor is, like, the director, the writer, the producers, none of us are on the screen. So if it goes south, if it doesn't work, no one sees us. So they don't really blame us, but they do blame the actors, because that's who they looked at. And I've always, that, that inherent risk where you take as an actor, where you say to a director, primarily to the director, you're not going to let me look stupid here, right? <laughs> like, you're not going to let me misstep here, right? You know what I mean? But that that's... requires an immense amount of trust. Yeah. And that's something that you don't always have or it's not it's not necessarily um, a done deal. You don't just walk on the set and just assume you, you and your director are going to have this. You know, you have to trust your director. But sometimes you feel as an actor that you're getting walked down the wrong path. And your instinct is saying, you know what? I, no, that's not, that doesn't, it just doesn't feel organic for this scene, for this moment, for this character. And I've, you know, I don't know an actor working out there who hasn't had moments like that where you're just at complete diametrically opposite ends of the spectrum with your director. They wanted you to do it this way and you're thinking it's got to go more this way. And you have to find that medium ground, you know, that middle ground to appease everybody involved. But there are times when you're like, ah, oh, and invariably, <laughs> when you watch back, if it's a show, it's a movie, whatever the case may be, they used to take that you liked the least. It never fails. Um, every time I watch them, I'm like, ah, oh, Jesus, they use that fucking take? Are you kidding me? That's the one I hated, you know, like that one, and that was what they wanted, so... You just have to build a rapport. You just, I think that's what's important about the interview. Like you and I, when you talk to, when you go into a project and you talk, you, I love, yeah, you have to audition for shows, but I think you can glean more from having an interview one-on-one -on -one, um, with actors and directors and you get to know the person. Well, it's like, especially if you're working with actors who have a body of work. If you want to know if they can act, watch, watch their stuff. That's and then exactly, you'll know. so glad to hear you say it. That's the thing, like, you know what we can do. You've seen the body of work, but now let's talk and see if we gel on this project or this character. Do we, are we on the same page? That's right. That's what's important. I hate, I, I get really frustrated when I'm dealing with a manager or an agent who says, well, what do you need a meeting for? I'm like, because I have to make sure I like this person. We don't have to be best friends, but if I don't like you, we probably won't work that well together. Of course not. That's just, that's, I mean, why does anybody interview anything? You know, nobody walks into a job on Wall Street without an interview. You got, you know, you have to interview. You have to know whether you're compatible or not. If you're questioning our, whether or not we can do the scene, do I have to do these three lines on a phone call and, and, and do a self-tape? Like, well, that, that just seems, you know, unnecessary. But, a, but a, a chemistry meeting between the director and an actor or two different actors, that's important. One thing, a little observation, I thought I would share with you is more of an anecdote thing. But I was, it, you know, in Lynch's, there's this, there's, there's quite a few scenes of your character sort of being led to do some horrible thing or coerced and having to react to people's terrible words, terrible ideas, terrible actions. And you, you had a lot of this really difficult stuff where, you know, sometimes, like, I don't know if it's Hoffman or who said, but sometimes the, the best acting is reacting, something along those lines. You had so much of that to do in the movie and and it's funny because you know after that then seeing in hush 
where you have that scene, you know, basically the one scene. And then that scene, same kind of thing where you're having to kind of play something's not right here. You know, it's a lot of reactionary stuff, which can be thankless at times if it's not being done a certain way. But and then again, in Midnight Mass, you have that scene um, where you come to Joe Cawley's body. And I was like, I remember watching Midnight Mass and that scene came up and I was like, I'm having flashbacks to Lineage because it felt so, and I was like, this is the Churko specialty. You're the best at this. So funny you say that. James Brolin said that to me way back on, on um, really? Pensacola, <laughs> back in these days. Okay, fine. Never... He told me to say uh, this. He told me to God, say okay, this. You were oh, set yeah. up. And I was like, he goes, I got to tell you something. He goes, you know, because he was directing and he goes, I love cutting. He goes, you're, you know, acting is only one half of the equation. Reacting is the other side. And he goes, you do it well. And I remember thinking, oh, shit, because those are very daunting. That, that, that scene you mentioned in Midnight Mass, I was terrified. Like when that camera's rolling and you're in your close-up and you don't get to say anything. I didn't have that big, beautiful monologue that, that Sam Sloyan's character had, Bev Keen, you know, when she's, she's dressing me down. So you just have to sit there and tell, oh, she's phenomenal. And you just have to sit there and listen and take it. But you've got to be in it and you have got to be focused and, and feeling it. And man, those, those are tough, but those, that's, that's the I deal. loved you watching know, you in those that. scenes on Lineage, though, because I got a lot, I had a lot of time to do it because we, you had a lot of that material in Lineage. And so I'm, you know, people don't realize yeah. when you, when you make a film necessarily together, like how many takes you do. So I got to watch you doing it a bunch of times. And I remember watching <laughs> yeah, like the little sure. augmentations and the little differences and thinking like, man, like this is hard to do because yeah, it, to it me, I could see other actors kind of, that would be their moment to check out and think about what they're going to have for dinner. Or like, you know, what, you know, I got to call the wife or whatever because someone else is talking and it's, you know, that, and ostensibly I would argue that that's bad acting, but, but, you right. know, not only are you present in those situations, you're, you're like, you're 110%. You're not, the monologue to me is like, that's, you know, every actor knows it's fun to have a monologue. A of course it is. But like, you know, those scenes where you got to, if we don't buy your reaction to what this yeah, other person is right. doing, that's then the right. whole thing doesn't work. Exactly right. Yeah. And, and in that scenario, you're the audience. That's a really important job. Ah, that's an interesting. And I, I think, never thought of it that way, but you're exactly right. You don't want to be the instrument that takes people out of the scene. Just because you're not the one who's driving the, the scene, you know, narratively with, like you said, a large, delicious monologue where you can choose scenery, you have to be in it because you're the audience. You're exactly right. You have yeah, to. Yeah, you're you are serving it. You know, in yeah. that scene with the scene with, with Joe, you know, dead Joe Collie and that. Colley what's the actress's name? Uh, Sam Sloyan, Samantha Sloyan, yeah, who plays Sam Beth Keen. Uh, yeah. yeah, like you know, she's giving you this speech and you're reacting, but your reactions are a mirror of what the audience is thinking at the same time. Yeah. And so you have that responsibility to represent the audience there. And I got to tell you, I think that's a special to you. <laughs> she smacked the shit out of me too. And I, and I, I gave her, I said, I'm giving you <laughs> the green light. And we, we got in there and I said, we're rehearsing it. And of course you rehearse it for camera and you do it a couple of times, make sure we do that, you know, grab, smack the hand. It's going to go like that. And I go, that's all fine. But when we roll, Sam, I was like, I'm giving you, I'm, you have my permission, but you need to knock the me into next Tuesday. Just go. You can't <laughs> fake a slap. You, know, you, you can't, can't fake a slap. There's no way to do can. it. And I don't want it to be yeah. fake. I, I didn't. And so she, she delivered, let's say. She had no particular like, okay. <laughs> and uh, I was like, wow, that was good. Yeah. She, she made her. Well, rock. I'm going to continue, you know, the next thing we do together, it's going to be continued. It'll be on the call sheet that it's a, it's the Truco specialty. Oh, I, I, yeah, I require some full hand, open hand slap across the face.
No, not the slap. This this scene of Michael playing, reacting to horror. Oh, okay. I love... Great. That's the Truco specialty. That's what that's going to be referred to from now on. So let's jump into Bye Bye Man. Yeah. 2017 Bye Bye. Um, Which is an interesting sort of career shift for you, right? Because now you... In Bye Bye Man, you kind of go from sort of... uh, you're a dad in that and you're yeah, like you're yeah. the brother of the main guy you know yeah. and like it's it, there's sort of a it's a different thing than what you've been doing it was boy um, you nailed it that's exactly right that was my first real dad did you have any like how did you feel about that were you like oh shit on dad's now like yeah. was there a, was there a, a yeah yeah it's, uh, almost exactly it's so funny you say that because i'm trying to think was it that Everything up until that point, yeah, you know, four or five years, even, you know, five, ten years before that, I would have been reading, I would have been the kid with his girlfriend, you know, in the haunted house. And then you go, oh, I'm the older brother who's married and has a daughter. I have a six-year-old daughter. Oh, shit, I'm playing those roles now. Um, so that definitely was a factor. Of, I mean, yeah, it, 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 the realization hit me, let's say, that I was like, oh, I'm playing that. But I was... You know, it was the same the same producer, Trevor Macy, who was was uh, as a now producing partner um, with Mike Flanagan, with Ed and Trevor. Okay. They, uh, their shingle is together. Trevor and, and Mike are a team, and so Trevor was the producer on Hush, and he was also a producer on Bye Bye Man. Not not wasn't a Mike Flanagan film, but it was a Trevor Macy film, and I'd already had such a great experience with Trevor once, and it was sort of a no brainer coming into this one. And now that I forged this relationship with them through Midnight Mass and now House of Usher, you know, uh, I just knew that Trevor was somebody that I wanted to be in business with because um, he's a lovely human being and I think he's an exceptional producer. Um, he's ex- incredibly transparent to his cast and crew, which I think is the, the hallmark of a great producer. They never feel like it's us versus them. And that this business definitely establishes that like, oh God, here comes the boss, you know, or they have information that they, you know, is they're only... They're, they're privy to, but they don't share that with the cast. And uh, Trevor is an extraordinary producer in that way that he makes everybody feel like we're all on the same page and we all know what's going on at the same time. If there's a problem on set, he'll first one to tell, he's the guy that says, here's what's happening. And I'll tell you what happened. And I'll say, you know, who's to blame? And, it's, and he'll take the blame. And he'll, it's, it's awesome. Anyway, so Bye Bye Man was, uh, that was, but that was not a big uh, um, impact on my decision to do that because it wasn't a huge role, you know, um, but I, I it's, an important, it's, it's an important role, but it's not a it big is an important role. Yeah. yeah, and it's horror. And also, I have to say, uh, um, you know, again, just we talked about this before. It's this, it's the story, right? And I, I was like, this is just. I remember reading, it's like fucking creepy, man. That 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 whole don't say it, don't don't think it, don't say it, don't think it. Um, I just I was kind of intrigued and horror. You know, as we are, then this this is the, you know your specialty and. I, f- I like that medium, and I found this was a classic haunted house horror type totally. movie, and I was like, I love those. I-, I always wanted to be in one like that. So, yeah, yeah. it was cool. And we shot it yeah, out in I mean, Cleveland, and we were, we were in a really creepy house, you know, and, and uh, I got to meet Doug Jones for the first time. And, I was just going to say, and you had one of the great modern-day monster actors legendary. in the film, Doug legendary. Jones. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, and 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 yeah. I mean, for the record, one of the sweetest human beings on the face of this planet. And anybody's ever met him and knows what I'm talking about. That man is like six foot seven of just love from head to toe, just love. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the and Doug that's Jones so hugs. often the oh, case, so though. Great. I know he's so great. 
Like, I remember one of the first, like, famous people I met was Willem Dafoe. And I was, a ki- as a kid, I was terrified of Willem Dafoe. Yeah. I thought he was the scariest actor. And then <laughs> I met him at, a, like, a TIFF party, and he was the loveliest. Isn't that great? Sweetest. Isn't that great? Just, oh, he was such a lovely man. And I was this kid. I was, like, ni- literally, like, 19. And he was so, like... And he wanted to ask me all kinds of stuff about, like, what I was there for. What I And I, oh, he was just so such great. a genuine person. And I was just, like... You know, over my career, as I've gotten to meet some of the great uh, villain actors, had that opportunity. You know, that's so often the case. Yeah. And I don't yeah. know. You know, I can't help but think that it's something that George Romero used to say to me that, that people always, you know, he's always has to. He meets people and they think he's going to be some scary guy. And he goes, "The horror guys are always the most chill because we oh. get all that shit out in our work." Exactly. Yeah, you know what I mean? We don't carry that around yeah. with us. The, the dark is on screen, but when the, when you yell "cut," they're just lovely human beings. Um, I have a funny, yeah. I have a funny story for if I could tell from um, from the set of uh, Bye Bye Man because um, we've just yeah, brought up, we brought up Doug Jones and uh, it was one of the days uh, I was I was shooting I was on but I had a little bit of a break and and they were working out this this um, scene between um, God the actor that played my brother we have the same birthday uh, um, Smith, yeah, Doug I, Smith. Uh, I can tell you Doug Smith Douglas yeah. Smith because um, it was Doug Jones and Doug Smith, yeah. So they were working out this bit where where Doug Jones in the in the the full regalia as the creature in this film makes his appearance and it's terrifying and he's wearing the Grim Reaper robe and he's got these massive prosthetic, uh, creepy extended fingers with the long nails and he's just in yeah very you know, Nosferatu he's the, he's kind of yeah very Nosferatu exactly yeah. and so he's the master of yeah, creature yeah. he is the creature feature and he's at the top of the stairs on the second story house and there's Doug Smith cowering and it's the first time that you know that finally we get this connection between the monster and our hero and Doug is at the top of the stairs and so I had you know had some time and I was just kind of bored in my trail I was like I'm gonna go to set and watch them shoot you know I'm sitting at Video Village and I just was I love this shit that's why I say I love being on set I just love the the the, the make-believe and the fantasy in the world that, that we're in so I'm watching this scene and they've got atmosphere and they've got smoke and great lighting and and poor Doug's just in there cowering and he's crying and here's Doug Jones at the top of the stairs and he has this his his blocking his action is to appear on the landing and then slowly descend the staircase and get closer and closer until that one of those that finger gets right up in in Doug Smith's face <laughs> sometimes at the top of the stairs and I forget if he has a line or not but he turns camera's on is beautiful and he goes to make his way down the stairs and he reaches for the banister and i was like isn't this guy like satan not like i don't know the monster monster you know like i'm gonna kill these are tricky stairs hold on a second these (laughs) things are really kind of challenging aren't they and i was just in my mind i was cracking i was like i looked at i looked at our director i was like did he just use the handrail isn't it like isn't he the the embodiment of the evil monster and he's like I will get you. Oh, watch that first step. That's that one must be loose. And the reality was, everybody ate shit on that staircase at some point during the shoot. In the 21 days we were in that house, somebody, no matter who they were, from the crew on up to actors, somebody <laughs> ate shit either going up or down those stairs. They were this house was like a 180-year-old house, and those things were gnarly. They were the wrong size, the tread and the rise weren't even. And I think that Doug, because he had a robe, he had this massive wardrobe, and he was like, "I'm not, I'm not, I'm not following." He probably had contacts in and all kinds oh, of stuff. He definitely that did. Yeah, couldn't yeah. see. Yeah. And he had his, and he had, he had extended, uh, you know, prosthetic feet, prosthetic hands, and so he's like, 
I just reach out and use the banister while I descend these stairs. And man, I just cracked up every time. I was like, the monster's using this, using, using the handrail. Did they, did they use it in the movie? Does he hold a railing in the film? I think they did. Um, I think he also I, I had the dog with him. Yeah, now you have to check. So if anybody goes and watches it, look for that scene. I have scene. to check that now. Yeah. Yeah, one of our listeners, like, let us know, does Doug Jones hold He's, the railing? As he descends the stairs. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It makes me think of, I heard this story about when they were doing Troy, uh, Peter O'Toole has this sequence where he has got this big, long, like, monologue, and he's coming down as a flight of stairs. It's like, like a curving flight of stairs. Yeah. And uh, and, and he's got, you know, this, these big, like, flowing robes and stuff. It's, you know, a period thing. And, and uh, Orlando Bloom is in the scene with him. And, and uh, so Peter would come down these stairs, and by the time he'd get to the bottom, he'd just be like, you know, he's quite elderly too, and he's sure. wheezy, and he's like, uh, and he's dying, right? And, right. and immediately he's like, uh, someone runs over and gives him his cigarette. Right. <sighs> and then he feels better. And so finally, yeah, finally Orlando Bloom turns to him and goes, you know, Peter, like, you ever thought about you just quitting smoking? Peter goes, no, but I'm thinking about quitting fucking stairs. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, never again. Take no rules yeah. that involve climbing stairs. Yeah. So yeah. true. Yeah. I'm not going to give up cigarettes. Um, I'm going to give up acting. <laughs> no, I thought that was amazing. It's, that's awesome. You know, Peter, that's such a Peter O'Toole thing to say, too. Yeah. Um, it's funny, too, because by the way, it has a movie, like, I, I watched it again. And I'd seen it, but I watched it again and prepared for, for our, our, our talk here. And it was like, I think it's great. But it's weirdly a movie that when it first came out, it didn't quite land, right? It's, yeah, it didn't. Like, it did okay. It did okay, it did okay but yeah. critics were pretty rough on it. Mm -hmm. um, fans were kind of lukewarm. But over time, it's developed reputation and people yeah, I think it now it is fans and you know like john carpenter is a prime example person who's like every like he made the thing which of course now we all think well the thing classic when that movie came out it tanked everyone hated it total bomb interesting it's big trouble little china everyone hated it tanks bomb like you know there's in the genre there's this weird history of movies that come out and at the time everybody goes eh, or they hate it and then over time, all of a sudden, that changes, and it turns into something else. Yeah, why and is that? I think that? that's happening with Bye Bye Man. What do you think that is? You're, you're a student of the, of the genre. I mean, you, you know. You know, I think, it's, I think it has a lot to do with, one, that people um, are, are so responsive to what's in the zeitgeist at the time, right? So sure. I think of the thing, and the thing comes out, and the studio, in all their wisdom, releases it right after E.T., um, maybe yeah. not the best time to put yeah, out yeah, you know yeah, yeah, a, a right. movie about aliens that want to come here and subsume and consume us and eat us and, and destroy yeah. the world when everyone wants to hug aliens yeah so here comes the thing and it's terrifying but everyone's like but et's so cute I, this is a drag like yeah, so i think that's interesting that's the timing can be a huge part of it i think um something like uh big trouble little china like you know Everybody loves that movie, but the, yeah, at the but time the movie came out, and the test screenings were all well. Everybody's pissed off because they're going. Well, I want to see Kurt Russell the hero, and in that movie, he's a total coward. Yeah. He runs away from danger constantly, and his sidekick has to do all the fighting because he's just this blowhard who talks a lot of talk, but he's totally but useless when the shit hits the fan. That's the gag of the movie, and John Carpenter but thought everyone understood. It, yeah. 
Yeah. And so they saw and they were like, this is bullshit. I want to see Kurt Russell beat everybody. And now people go back and they realize that, of course, John was right. That is the best part of it is that we've seen Kurt kick ass on your times. So, yeah. Now it's fun to see him play this whip, this guy who cowers every time there's trouble. But he's got all the trappings of the hero. So I think yeah. sometimes it's because a movie, a movie comes out and people think they have an idea what it is. And then it's something different. And it takes a while for them to acquire that taste. They go, you know what? It isn't what I thought it would be. It's something completely different. And I'm digging it. Yeah, it's true. And people didn't want to accept, you know, actors like Jim Carrey or Robin Williams in, in serious dramatic roles. And they're both exceptional dramatic actors. They just, they had cut their teeth and, and you know, were introduced to the world as these hyperkinetic comedians. But, when, you know... If you look back on Robin Williams' career, and and, and uh, I think it was uh, uh, the world according to Garp, for example, you know, people were like mm -hmm. that movie is now it's a it's a classic and it's an excellent film, but I think that was the things people were like, well, that wasn't that funny. Wait, what? You know, it wasn't meant to be. And so I think you're right. I think that that is part and parcel to you know, it's just about perception and 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 timing, like you said. So maybe that's the case with something like Bye Bye Man. I think there was a lot of expectation too, you know, maybe that was, you know, right. it's, and let's be honest, there wasn't any big name leading, the, but I guess in the in the no. horror genre, you know, they, there usually isn't. It's just, you know. You know what I, I think it was though? Like it had a, it, it didn't have, it wasn't, you know, an ultra low budget. It had a budget. It, the poster was cool. The trailer was great. It looked like something that everybody had an idea of what they thought it was going to be, but then it was something just a little bit different. And I remember, you know, when I saw it, I, I was also so impressed when I saw that the director was a woman. And then it was like, yes. oh, that's, you know, there's not a ton of women directors. That's I right. mean, in, in general, it's gotten but better, in horror but genre, yeah. particularly in horror, you yeah. know what I mean? And so here's this, you know, a female director um, who I thought just nailed it out of the park. But, yeah, um, she was great. Stacey Title, I believe that was Stacey her name, Tidal, right? Stacey exactly. Yeah, wonderful. It was an Oscar-nominated director. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. For Christ's sake. Yeah, like she, she was directed an Oscar nominated short film. That's right. Exactly. And sadly, right. she passed away from ALS what, last year. I was just going to say, I don't know if you knew that, if you were privy to that. I don't know if you're, yeah, that, yeah, she suffered ALS shortly after we made that movie, you know, and, and she, she was an advocate for, for disabled people in, in film. And, you know, she, God, what, a, what an incredible heart and an incredible human being. And, uh, it's a big blow, man. That's, that's a big loss because there was, many more great things you know on her horizon so yeah we mourn her i'm glad sure. though that she got to i hope she and i hope she knew before she passed it was last year she passed away is that right uh, yeah um, it may have been the year before I, I should know this but yeah okay yeah it was recently i hope she knew by that point that the film had become you know this had started to take on a cult i, I think so status. i, I actually think so yeah yeah i think so i hope so because yeah because that's you know that's I, I think that 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 gives me some comfort because Good. she she it's a great and genre she deserves film. It. She yeah, really, and she deserves it. And you're yeah, right. She, she, she was sort of a maverick in, in, a, in a very male dominant. And like you said, just the, the business in general is male dominant, but in the horror genre specifically, for a woman to cut her teeth and, and get in there and do the job that she did and and execute like she did, is that's what I mean. She's she's a, a front runner. And I mean, I uh, you know she's sort of a you know she's she's laying the foundation for women to follow in her footsteps. And so, you know, I mean, that's I thought there's, 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 a, there's a couple ways in the film where I feel like, you know, I, I, I don't, and this, I could be wrong, but it was 
when I watched the performances, she got it. Like Carrie Ann Moss, who's amazing. Yeah, right. I know. I, awesome. What an actress! Like she's brilliant. I love Carrie Ann Moss, and she's got a small part in the film, but of That's course, right. every she makes something out of every beat. Of course, she's brilliant in the film. Of course, she does. Yeah. Uh, Faye Dunaway. <laughs> Faye Dunaway is in it. That's right. A legend. Like, and I, you know, Faye Dunaway is not without her. Uh, at this point, a, a reputation for being. Oh. Yeah, I was gonna. I was gonna wonder. I was gonna ask you if you were <laughs> aware of that reputation. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. And I watched, yeah. you know, watched her in the film, and she's very good at it. But I was like, I wonder what Stacy's experience was like with Faye Dunaway. If Faye Dunaway afforded her any extra leverage because of her being, you know, a, a woman, um, you know, and, and there being a sense of camaraderie that she might not have had with men, <laughs> or if she was still, she was. She's equal opportunity difficult. She doesn't give a shit. Right. She was, you know. Yeah. You know, look, I, you know, do you, was, you can you can argue with something like Faye Dunaway. She's earned that. You know, she's Hollywood legend. Uh, listen, I can't speak to it directly because I wasn't there for it. I didn't have any any scenes with with Faye. Gonna hazard a guess that Carrie Ann Moss, who's brilliant and brilliant in the film, probably didn't carry on in that fashion. No, no, I actually did get to see her yeah. on set. Didn't have anything to get with her, but I did. There was one point where. Our chairs were right now. I remember that was, I kind of fanboyed a little bit because you go to the yeah, set, they call you from your trailer and they say the green room's upstairs in the back bedroom, you know, where we always were. And you go back there, you look for your chair and there's your name and then the chair's sitting next to Carrie Ann Moss. It's like, oh, 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 oh. I got to take a picture. <laughs> you know, like, I was a little fanboy. Yeah, and then totally. she comes in, I was like, hey, what's going on? Oh yeah, just, you know, it was, yeah. It was was she know, great? Oh my God, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Exactly what yeah. you expect. Yeah, humble and, and that lovely. Place, and, I'm, a, I'm a fan, so yes, that's nice yes. to hear that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And you worked with, like you said, you talked about working with um, uh, a kid, a, a child actor, Eric Tremblay. That's exactly um, right. Was uh, was that your first time having like you know a lot of material with a child actor? Yeah, it was. Yeah, what was that like? Fucking handful. Oh my god. Really? Girl, oh really? my god. She was a firecracker man so you know her brother jacob tremblay jo uh, jacob tremblay yeah yes yeah, yeah. you know and, and his, oh i didn't his... realize that was her brother but yeah oh, of course yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah. this th yeah. and i can say this with some confidence trevor macy the producer is sort of mm -hmm. it's trevor's uh, um they hired jacob for what i think was one of mike's films and he's also been in um dr sleep so yeah. Jacob sort of broke under the scene. Oh my God, through... Dr. Sleep. Oh my God. Oh, that's exactly. So, but, it, but he was in something before that. He was in something before <laughs> yeah. that. So okay. actually yeah. Trevor Macy is sort Oculus of- Oculus or something maybe? I think it was Oculus, yeah. So yeah. they had already hired Jacob a few times and uh, learned that he had a sister and she fit the bill for this. And they're like, well, you know, we love Jacob. Uh, you know, we should get Erica for this. And- she was amazing. I mean, my God, she's great. She's lovely. But oh, she's fantastic. Yeah. But what's what I love about it, and I say that she was a handful only in the in the in the best way that she's she's just first and foremost through and through. She's just a kid. She just she's just a child yeah. who has child energy. So she didn't give a shit about you know lighting and stand on your mark and and, and sweetheart, <laughs> st stand here. No, they're just we, okay. Don't don't. We just need you to look over there. Don't no. Don't do that right now. Yeah. Just stand right there. We're trying. They were trying to light a scene, and she'd go down and she'd look at her mark and she'd rip the tape up. She'd go man and she'd stick it to me. I was like, no, you can't actually. You got to leave that there, sweetheart. You got to. And then she would fucking run around and take off, and she'd be like ah, screaming really loud. And then she'd come back and they'd put her on a mark. They go, okay, we just need you to stand here, okay? And then Michael's gonna come in. And all of a sudden she'd go, leaves! And she'd run on the front lawn and roll around in a bunch of leaves. Now 
now her wardrobe's covered in leaves, so now they're picking the leaves off of her. And it was just, here was, it was so fun and beautiful to see that just a kid being a kid. And she, yeah, she wasn't yeah. in the whole Hollywood, I'm an actress. She was just thinking, this is just one big playground. She was having a blast. Yeah. yeah we're, in the, we're in the truck and <laughs> they set up the lights. You know, we're, on a, uh, uh, we're in a, uh, you know, a uh, poor man's rig. So we're on a soundstage and they do the blue screen and we're in the pickup truck. And they're lighting, and it's very specific. You got to have these little tiny lights, and they're trying to put just the right amount of filter on it. And we're sitting in the truck, and it's just you know five more minutes, guys. And I can see, I can see Erica, and you know she's doing that thing where her legs are kind of you know bouncing up and down. It's like, oh, buddy, she's just a ball of energy. Here we go. And the sound guy comes in. He goes, okay, we're all good. He goes, you guys are mic, but there's also just you know be careful because we also have a mic right underneath the dashboard here. And I was like, oh no, don't, don't. don't. And as soon as he pointed out the mic, I was like, if he had not pointed it out. She never would have seen it. But of course, the minute she knew there was a mic, she'd go right to the mic and she would go right out, you know, and everybody would have headphones like, come on. And she would, we had the scene with the coins and she'd take the two coins and go, kink, 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 right in front of the microphone. And I was like, Erica, sweetheart, can you not do that so loud in front of Mike? I was like, hey man, you pointed it out. It's the thing we talked about earlier. It's like, do not read this sign. He's like, you shouldn't have pointed it out to her. Now she knows it's there. But she was, so funny. she was a handful Oh, it was so fun. But I, I loved it because there was something really pure. And her dad was on set all the time. And I was like, you know, good for them. They they were letting her have the joy in this business. And that's and okay. You don't have to be mad at a kid for being a you kid. Can't. Like, that's insane. No, you could. And, and, and no yeah. one ever was. And Stacy was amazing. Yeah. She was so diplomatic. She was so good with her. She was like, okay, sweetheart. Okay. You know, and she she never got mad. And you know we're trying to make our days, and and here's this kid just you know, yeah. running around like a banshee, like head and she head cut off. Yeah, and just it was classic, <laughs> and and there was, but it was also really beautiful at the same time. We were like, there you go, good. I'm glad to see that. Yeah. And there's a family who clearly has a lot of fun, and and uh, they don't they don't pressure their kids, you know, to be these little Stepford actors. They just like go out and enjoy it. If you're not having fun, then don't do it. You know, and I, I'm a, I'm a big advocate for that. Right. Uh, yeah. So let's jump into Hush. Yeah. Hush is Blumhouse. It's your first time working with with I. If, yeah. if I'm wrong, this is your first time working with Flanagan, right? Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah. So you know, <laughs> two uh, names in the genre that people might be familiar with: Bloom, Bloom and Mike Flanagan. Mike Flanagan. Yeah, I think people might. Yeah. Those might ring a few bells. Um. Now, of course, I'm sure you were very aware of Bloomhouse at that point and very, about what yeah, they were doing. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, absolutely. Did they finance the film or did, was it a pickup? Did they get it after it was already done? That's a good question. I, I, I can tell you this. Netflix got it after it was done. So I want to say that it was a financed uh, Bloomhouse production. Okay. I'm almost okay. certain it was. So, and I, correct me if I'm wrong, anybody that's out listening, and God, you know, if I got that wrong, Trevor, Mike, I'm sorry, but I think it was. I think this was a Blumhouse picture. It was co-produced with Intrepid, but I believe they were the financiers, yes. Right, okay. So for you, like, this is your first time working with, with Mike Flanagan. Yeah. Do you remember your first meeting with Mike? Do you remember what it was like? And- 100%. I remember it like it was yesterday. I remember the preamble to this was also the call from, I got uh, one of those conference calls where an assistant goes, I've got Laura and, and Scott on the phone. You know, when your agent and your manager are both on the phone, he was like, oh, this will be an interesting phone conversation. And they were both on a conference call. And they said, hey, so we have this offer. Um, there's no money. It's, it's not a huge part. Um, it's an Al- it's an Alabama <laughs> Um, it's a horror film. 
but he, and, and they, they set all that up and they said, but um, it's written and directed by Mike Flanagan. And if you may or may not have heard Mike Flanagan yet, you will. And they said, our recommendation is, A, you, know, you do what you want, but look at this. But the reason we're sending you this offer and then we're taking, we're taking this seriously is that we think that Mike Flanagan is somebody that you will want to be in business with. Like he was already starting to percolate on that, that those, you know, those ones to watch lists that people, you know, put around the industry yeah, and yeah. directors that, you know, that have, that are, have voice. And so he, all, his reputation was, was already preceding him. And I'll never forget my agent manager both saying, you know, do what you want. This is another money job, but if nothing for nothing, we would, our recommendation is that you look, take a look at this. Cause we think that uh, these are good people involved. And so I did my, you know, due diligence. You research somebody, go, oh, Mike Flanagan, and look them up. And then I cross pollinated and realized that Oculus was with Katie Sackhoff, who was my TV wife on Battlestar Galactica. So I immediately called Katie for reference and said, hey, so I'm contemplating on doing this little film. This guy, Mike Flanagan, you worked with him. And she immediately, you know, she gave a, a ringing endorsement to Mike. Yeah, she's like, Do it. yeah, yeah, yeah. The yeah. guy is, is, is um, a creative giant. And we use, we bandy around the words, you know, genius and brilliant a lot. And that's just, those, you know, become kind of hyperbolic in our business. Oh, that was genius. Oh, it's brilliant. My first meeting with Mike was when I flew to Alabama and they bring me to set. And I never forget, I got out of the van and we fucking long from the hotel to, to this remote location in the woods of Alabama. And we go down this long, muddy dirt road to get to the driveway of this lone cabin. And I get out of the van and the first person they brought me to go see was, was Mike. And he, my initial thought, I remember this was like, I was, I don't know what I was expecting. I, I just, I think that I, I thought, you know, he'd have the, this auteur, the air of like, you know, like, oh God, here's this director. And he was just this, he's just a dude, just a cool guy. He was like, oh, hey man, oh, awesome, you're here. And this, this unbridled enthusiasm that I see, I didn't realize to the degree, like you were saying, when the lineage, they were fans of Battlestar Galactica, both Mike and Trevor, Trevor I mentioned earlier, and Mike. And I mean fans like, so he was having one of those fan moments where he was like, holy shit, that's Anders from Battlestar Galactica is walking out of the van. And, but I didn't know yeah. this at the time. And I was like, man, this guy's well, you, really you might nice. include him because of the Katie Sackhoff connection that they might have been fans. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, for sure. Yeah. And then and he wants to hire everybody from Battlestar eventually. But it's yeah. it's really yeah. weird because you forget that. And that goes back to that thing, Ken, we talked about the imposter syndrome. I don't never feel myself, I don't feel like my presence walking on the set. I'm yeah. walking on to his set, his movie. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. And he was kind of walking on eggshells, and uh I was I was so taken aback by that. That that somebody would like you're a fan of mine. I mean, I'm here to do your movie. Oh my God, I'm I'm the one that's grateful. And I said, uh, you know, nice to meet you. And you so you know, we're gonna get to your stuff next week. I can't wait to shoot your stuff. And I said, oh, you know, I got a great question for you, Mike. Do you guys have a picture of the girl that plays my girlfriend, who happens to be the actress Samantha Sloyan from Midnight Mass, who was Bev Keen? Oh, and that's right. he goes, yeah, right. okay, yeah, yeah, Sam, Sam played my girlfriend. He goes, I'll do you one better. I'll, uh, you want to see her? I'll show you a scene that we shot yesterday. And I was like, oh, he's going to show me dailies. Cool. So he brings up just like what I'm sitting right here. He has his, he opens up a laptop and we go inside the house and I'm thinking I'm going to see a lock off shot, you know, uh, of uh, dailies and see some of Sam's coverage. And he's just going to, or he's going to show me a screen capture of her. 
And the next thing you know, he plays, he hits play, and I'm watching this scene, and I see this beautiful camera move, and it comes down, and all of a sudden I'm watching a, I'm watching a movie. And I was like, did he just put a DVD? I'm like, I'm watching a film. You shot this yesterday? I was like, what? I don't understand who he was. Oh, I, I, I edit as I go. And he had this already assembled a scene between Kate Siegel and Sam where they're sitting on in the beginning of the movie. They're, they're, they're you know, and they're signing because Kate's yeah. character is deaf. Yeah. She brings Sam, the book back to her and all that. Yeah, stuff. And you know the name of the book. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Midnight Mass. Midnight Mass. But yeah. Mike showed me a scene that they had previously shot less than 24 hours ago and hadn't even gone, you know, back to LA for, for final print. And I was like, this is fucking amazing. Like I just, all I wanted to see was a picture of Sam. And now he's showing me something shot yesterday. I was like, who is this guy? How do you do that? When do you sleep? And that was my first impression of Mike was like, Oh, okay. This guy's super legit. Like he really takes this, his craft and this, this format, this thing that we do, this filmmaking, you know, this world of play that we get to do, he takes it really, really seriously, and he's really good at it. And so that I think was it's when one of those guys like, to me where I'm like, there's, there's directors that I've met or that I've, whose work I'm familiar with or whatever it is where you go, okay, there's directors who are, you know, they're capable, talented directors, whatever. And then there are guys where it's like a compulsion, where it's like there's nothing else That's right. that they will ever be able to apply themselves or want to apply themselves That's to exactly doing right. other than this thing. That's exactly. You just and I, and, I, and yeah. Yeah. yeah, Flanagan is compelled to do, I imagine, what yeah. he does. Yeah, he does and, so it, it is. and that's the only answer, Kevin, is that he's compelled and, and he's he's driven by um, some dark force, that an unseen forces, because I, I'm fairly certain that he's a vampire, that he actually does not sleep. He might be about 350 years old. I just, I, there's no way that you can, that the wisdom and depth and, and creativity can all sprout from one human being. And it's one thing to direct something. It's one thing to write and direct something. It's one thing to write, direct, and produce something, and then edit it and all at the same time. You know, like, when, when, is he, when do you sleep, Mike? He, did, he never stops. Yeah. And he'll take a meeting with anybody any, at any time in any department if they go, hey, Mike, I want to talk to you about something. He's like, great, what do you want to talk about? He can't wait to talk about it. You have a question? Let's talk about it. He's, his enthusiasm is infectious. And that was my first impression walking out of that set that this could have been one of those like, oh, God, some little low-budget, horrible movie in the middle of the woods in the mud. And it was, I was like, oh, this is, this is real deal. I and was watching those guys it, work. You're coming into it, too, where, like, Flanagan's wife i i i yeah don't know if they were married at the time when they did hush i think they, they were may right? have been engaged yeah i think they just got, got married yeah it was around then yeah so they're like partners in life and then they're these creative partners a sort of power couple on set <laughs> right like that must have been pretty cool to just be a part of that and, and see that in play and oh yeah they, they were fantastic their dynamic is excellent they co-wrote the the um screenplay for hush and okay. legend has it that it was in a cabin. They went and they they went they went out and got off the grid and sat down with a bottle of whiskey. And in forty eight hours, they had they had pushed out a script. They sat for two days straight, just you know having a, having a, a bottle of whiskey and 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 they bandied around and I, they had the concept of the just a very loose concept of the idea of a woman in a house, a glass house, and a guy shows up with a knife behind a mask. And they're like, go. And they, it was very wait until dark, you know, and they, they kind of just did their spin on that. And uh, Kate's performance in that film is outstanding. She is phenomenal. Well, it's yeah. one of those things where, like, I think it's people might be tempted to come to, to, to the notion of, 
of Mike Flanagan in case Eagles work relationship and go like, oh, well, he's a director, she's an actor. Like, she gets these parts because, you know, people bring that that negativity, of that, that skepticism. Yeah. But it's undeniable when you watch their work together, that's not the case. Well, if, if it, the case might be, hey, she might have the inside angle on getting these roles, but it's earned and it's 1000% deserved because she is the real yeah. deal. And, and that's, but that's a testament to Mike. Mike doesn't suffer fools and he won't fuck around and he won't, he, if you're not right for, you know, he has, it's, it's ultimately it's, you know, it's his product and he, you know, he's staking his reputation on getting the right people. If he didn't think he could do it, she wouldn't do it, but she can. And she's, she's certainly earned it and deserves it. And yes, she's married to the director, but who fucking cares? You know, like if that, that only enhances their dynamic and you watch Hill House and you watch her, her in, in Midnight Mass and even in Blind Manor, like, Hush, you know, Mike is going to put her in everything he does, and he absolutely certainly should because she she has earned it. She deserves to be there. And, yeah, I, I know what you mean. There is always a, that innate negativity of nepotism and blah, blah, blah. This is not that case at all. No, it's not. No. It's funny, too, because, you, you know, this is a movie that has, like, I think it's less than 15 minutes of dialogue. Yeah, that's right. You know what I mean? Like, that's, like, not even that's 90 minutes not long. very... Yeah, I mean, that's less than 15 minutes of dialogue yeah. in a feature film. That's not very common. And right? I have, you know I what think, I mean? uh, so, 70% of it. Exactly. I was just going to say, I think half of the dialogue is yeah, yours. I yeah, mean, it was 60% yeah. or something like that is in that scene between John and I. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. that's intriguing. Know, 15 minutes of dialogue in, a, in an 80-something minute film is, and it, and it moves at a risk. It just moves. It just keeps you on the edge of your seat. We'll be back to the show in a moment. If you love what we're doing on Spill Your Guts, we could use your support helping to bring you more conversations with horror's icons, celebrities, creatives, and genre-defining artists. Please show your support by contributing whatever you can on our Patreon page. You can find us at www.patreon.com forward slash spillyourguts. All one word. If memberships are your thing, be sure to subscribe to our channel for exclusive bonus content, contests, and giveaways. Also, Please check us out on all the major social media channels for all things SYG. Thank you for listening, and now, let's get back to it. Did you know that the great uh, director William Friedkin is a huge fan of that movie? I did not know that. Is that true? William Friedkin, the director of The Exorcist, know, of course. loves, loves Hush. And go, when it came out, he went around telling everyone to watch it. No so he was advocating shit. for that film when it came out. I know Stephen the King. The director of The Exorcist. Yeah, well, that's, that's I mean, does it get better? I mean, if that's not a resounding no, endorsement, that's fucking awesome. William Friedkin, <laughs> holy shit. I actually yeah, list Stephen that as my King, all-time. Yeah, sure, of course. I, list, I always say it when people ask, that is my all-time, that is my, that's the pantheon of horror film for me, is The Exorcist. That is the single most terrifying I think it is for most people. Yeah. I think yeah. for, for good reason. Yeah, yeah because it's the scariest yeah. thing I've ever seen in my life. That and Poltergeist. Yes, I, are, I just, you know, yeah. They're terrifying. Just, that's a really, really, that crab walk upside down backwards on the stairs and the spinning head and all that stuff i bought yeah. a hook line cigarette i was young of course so you know but i was a well and ellen burston who just gives oh. this performance oh, it's like you know fantastic oscar nominated yeah. just this performance where you're like yeah, yeah i remember someone said it uh, you know some condescending prick critic said uh it's like no one bothered to tell her it was a horror film and i'm like i hate that 
kind of bullshit. Like, yeah, you know, yeah, it, it no, it's like it. she took a job and realized she was going to give it her everything, and she did. And it, that's, that's what she exactly got. Right. Like, I hate that kind of condescension towards the genre, and I'm so glad that it started to go away. But it was around for it so did. long. You know what I mean? It it's did. Like, it has. Don't know if that's actually in the world. Your scene with uh, John, John Gallagher, is it pronounced Gallagher? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that scene with with you guys and uh, you know that scene is so much about timing. Yes, you know what I mean. It's such a carefully calibrated scene. You know, you seeing things, experiencing, hearing things, little ticks that he's has. You know, as your characters putting together, something's not yeah. right here. Yeah, you know, and watching that scene. Yeah, and watching yeah. that scene again. Uh, you know, when I was preparing for our chat, and I and I. I, I was watching that scene. I was like, man, this is the timing is everything in a scene like this. You know what I mean? And like, uh, you know, both on the part of the editor and the director, but also, uh, you know, for the actors to just, and you know, again, it was you doing that thing where, you know, you, you, there's so many reaction shots of you in that scene, <laughs> no. just noticing things, just watching him. And I was yeah. like, the Truco specials again, like just is. these little moments, you know, where you're going, Hey, what, that's not, you know, and like, and, and and also to be fair, John Gallagher is wonderful in that. Scene. He's, he's excellent. Yeah, yeah, he really it's is. fantastic. And I love the way he, he did that too. scene. Oh man, it's the good, good thing you showed up. It's a big guy about your size, knocked me over. Yeah, he stole my car too. Because I was like, yeah, how'd you get here? Then he goes, and he looks out, and he's like, yeah, I must have taken my squad car. But <laughs> he's here. He was wearing like a. Hoodie I love the way and... he there's. He says like a liner. I can't remember how he played it, but it's like there's a part where he says something about like after. I think it's after he's he's stabbed you and he says something about you being a big guy and like how he would have been fucked if it i loved the way he did that because it's so like it's he say it like he's still being polite to you he's like wow it's a good thing that this played out like this yeah because yeah, right, you, you're, I, you're so like, you're, you're a big boy yeah <laughs> it's just so like what a, it's it, it's so much a part of it to make that character scary is like that he's still sort of being friendly with you almost in that moment that's, but that's he just stabbed you in the throat favorite moments yeah I, that, that is actually my to me that's my favorite moment in that entire scene when I get stuck in, in my initial reaction is that I, I go like this, like I got stung by a bee or, you know, like a mosquito bit me. Because he just goes, Shh, yeah. Sh, and it's just so quick. Yeah, it's very like, oh. fast, yeah. Yeah, and I'm like, what? And then it just starts going, right. <laughs> it's just, the you know, the blood yeah. work starts. And, yeah. And that's stuff's tough, that too, because really you intense. get into, like, you know, Monty Python, the Holy Grail territory, just you have blood fucking spurting out, you know what I mean? It's just, like, it could get, you know, to the odds, it could be like, oh, oh my God. Dude, like, that was a disaster. That, that gig, that, that, that gag never works the first time, and so, you know, the, the, you got to reset every time, and that's a full wardrobe change, and you got to reset got to make up got to get all that shit cleaned off they do it they had three people working pumps there's a tube going up your leg through your wardrobe up your back of your shirt comes out here they had a prosthetic neck patch underneath that the tubes are coming from your back then there's the stunt guy showing me that there's this retractable knife and i was like it is retractable and i understand that but what if <laughs> what if there's that one time is there a lock on there like there's a spring where it doesn't retract yeah. and, and this guy was like dude I, he was the stunt coordinator i can you do it all day it just it just goes in it goes in it goes in it's got it. and i went i know but you're still going to be putting that right on my jugular and there was something really weird that and you know i i held it i looked at it i, I pushed on it, it had like one pound of pressure would retract the blade, no problem. But it was just something about looking at that thing. We would go, you know, roll sound, we're shooting, and you have that moment. You know, we we staged this thing. We know what exactly the right moves. Like, a, you know, a dance fight scene. You got choreographed everything within an inch of its life. John reaches up, it goes, and it just goes, 
right on that patch on my neck, but you still party is like, what if that thing sticks and the blade doesn't retract? What if the spring just doesn't quite, yeah, spring, yeah. It was it was funny. I, I I acted in a film, a horror film, a slasher flick, where I played a character who gets shot with a an arrow from by the the killer in the movie, and the arrow goes into like my neck, and I had to a very similar kind of effect to what you're doing you know, with the spur and all that. But something went wrong with the tubing, and I remember it, we were outside, and it was freezing cold. Like this is northern Ontario in the like the middle of like well, I don't know, it was like late late fall going into winter. So it was freezing. And I had to do this bit where I fall and then all the rest of the scene plays out and I'm lying there like bleeding out. But something went wrong with the tubing and all that happened was they do it and I fall and all the blood is just collecting in my boxer shorts. And I'm just sitting there oh, with shit. like just with yep. just underwear full of this this syrupy it's blood. Syrup, yeah, it's basically stuff. a maple syrup yeah. dye. Yeah. So you got sugar, yeah, sticky nuts. Oh god, that's the worst. Yeah, and the, the the worst thing was I go and but so by the time we cut and I go to do it to, to like say, Hey, it didn't really work, which they kind of knew because it didn't spur. It just seeped it down. And I, they go, okay, well, we got to go change your wardrobe thing. And we go, and my underwear had frozen to my body, to my, yes. and so we had to cut it off and peel it off. And like, I'm not one of those like hairless, you know, yeah. people like it, it. Anyway, you can use your imagination, but it wasn't a fun experience. Um, uh, it's like Steve Carell <laughs> and Forty Year Old Virgin. <laughs> yeah, it was a lot like that. I just, yeah, but, but an even, an even more sensitive part of the body than the yeah, chest. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I, and I felt so bad for this poor makeup girl who's like, I'm. This is gonna hurt, but I'm just gonna do it in one go. And I'm like, I'm like, okay, just do it. Just, just do grabs, it. Just do it. They've already cut there, and she grabs the back of the, my boxers and goes to rip, and it didn't go in one go. She's like pulling, and I'm like, ah. ah. <laughs> yeah oh it my was, god it was, and you never yeah. acted again that was it for you that was what i was like so directing yeah yeah, yeah fuck this i'm Seems never like a better, doing this yeah. again yeah i actually you know it's funny i did get asked not long after my friend, friend of mine's the director asked me to do a bit in his film and he wanted me to and i was like i'll do the dialogue stuff and he's like don't worry you're gonna get killed off screen i was like okay that's cool then and then they changed their mind they're like no we actually want to do this bit it's gonna be great you'll be hanging from a hook and i was like no he's like what i was like no nope, mm -mm, no way yeah. I'm not, a, I'm not a, like, I, I don't want this the way that, like, my colleagues that are actors want this, so they'll put up with this shit. That's not me. I'll stay up all night to, to, to worry about, you know, our, our getting our day, and I'll do all the stuff that is in my job description. But, you're not gonna put but I'm enough. not, yeah. no more Carol syrup in the underwear. That's it. <laughs> yeah, Those days are over. Exactly. I want uh, my body here. Where I is? think you chose wisely, my friend. I think you did good. I think so, too. Um, uh, so I'm curious, by the end of the film, did you have a sense that, like, you and Flanagan had a chemistry where you thought, hey, this guy might call me again sometime? I know he likes, you know, Henry Thomas. He has this, the, he already, by then, by Hush, he already, it was clear he was the kind of director he liked to use the same actors. Did you have a sense that, like, hey, maybe, you know, I think this went well. Maybe I'll get a phone call from this guy. Um, yeah, yeah, the, the, yeah, the, the, to, to, to cut to the chase, yes. And I and that, that manifested itself that when we got back to L.A., um, we got together, you know, socially a couple times. He and Kate came over to the house for dinner. I think uh, Trevor and his wife Paige were also with us at that point. Um, I went to Mike's house a couple times. Well, he he would throw like for you know it started. He was did sort of a rap party since we didn't have a rap in in Alabama. He went home and did a rap party at his house. It started there, and I got the sense that 
and you know, we just got on really well, which is what we talked about earlier. That's just important to have chemistry with your, you know, an actor and director. You just have to have that. We just got on along famously on set. And I just really, uh, I just liked this guy. And I was like, this is something I would like to, you know, to hang out with socially. And of course, my my hope was that this would foster a relationship that we would get a chance to do this again. And, and he had said as much, but you know, words are cheap in this business. You hear that a lot. You know, if I had a dollar for every time somebody says, Oh dude, I'll put you in everything we ever do. Or like, you know, I hear these phrases, wow, how, how come you, how we get you in our next movie? You know, this producer, like, I don't know. It's your, you, you hire me. That's how you do it. Like, you know, it was, there's a lot of people always say, Oh, we got to get you back. And Mike had said as much. And, um, yeah, you know, here we are. Uh, it'll be my third or fourth project with him um, coming up. So I just, I had a sense of it at the time. I didn't know in what capacity. Right. Um, I do remember when he brought up uh, Haunting of Hill House before, yeah. you know, they had even had a deal on that. And he had, he, he had, he had brought that up to me. And, um, you know, and then of course, once they took off and they had their deal and they were to Amblin, you know, and then, the chips fell where they were at the time, but he had already made indications that he was thinking about me for his future projects. And, you know, that's always tricky because I never want to abuse that, right? You never, you know, you don't want to, you, all you can do is go, oh, wow, I'm flattered. Thank you so much for thinking of me. And, you know, Mike, my God, you say when I'll be there, but I, I never want to, you don't ever want to push it. You don't want to, Hey, so remember that time you said I was going to be, you know, you just let it happen organically. And if it happens, it does. You almost had a, 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 a scene or a character in Nail House. Is that right? Yeah. Well, so originally he had, sh uh, you know, he was still in its early stage of the concept. It was about the, you know, there was the, the family in Hill House and the, all the kids grew up to become adults. And, and he had mentioned the oldest brother as a character that he thought that I, you know, would be good for. And that was the role that Michael Huseman ultimately played. Um, Stephen, I believe, is great. The oldest, you know, the oldest uh, yeah. of, the, of the kids. Um they were in Atlanta shooting that uh, show in Atlanta before they started set up, set up shop in Vancouver. They were in Atlanta. And I was in Atlanta at the time doing a pilot for CBS cop show. And it just happened to be we were there at the same time. And so, you know, I shot him a text and, hey, I'm in Atlanta. We'd love to get together for dinner. And he's like, yes to dinner. We'll do that. But I'm going to send you something. Let me know what you think. And he had written a scene for me. And in the, in the show Hill House, that character of Stephen is an author. He's a, a horror, you know, writer. And he right, interviews yeah, people yeah. To, get, to hear their ghost stories. And then he will turn those into one of his novels, whether he likes a story. You know, if you, you decide in an interview if he likes a story enough to write about it. So that was kind of a recurring theme in the episodes that he sits down and interviews different people. And he wrote a character about a guy who has um, an old woman that lives right here behind his shoulder that's been with him since he was about 10 years old. And now he's, you know, 40 year old grown man, 40 something year old grown man. And he still has this imaginary woman that lives right here over his shoulder. And it was like this three page monologue of just this sort of, uh, uh, you know, this psycho babble. Um, um, it, it, it was what started off as a very lucid, very matter of fact. Yeah. When I was 10, um, she, she first appeared when I was, you know, uh, he talks very matter of fact, and you go, oh, this guy's just telling a story and he's about this woman that he's been speaking to for the last 30 years of his life. And it slowly starts to descend into, oh, this guy's batshit crazy. Like, the, and he's actually almost, he might be slightly dangerous. 
Um, and that was an incredible monologue and scene and it was beautiful and we were just ramping up to get ready to shoot it and that's when i got the call from trevor that the network they pulled that whole bit that whole scene just never made it it was going to run them over budget it required another location they just didn't have it and um they never even it never saw the light of day and part of me was so relieved because i was like oh that's that scares the hell out of me <laughs> it's like i don't know if i can pull that off and then of course you know you're you're bummed you're like oh man um, but yeah, that was, that was meant to be in, I think episode five or six of, of Hill house, but it just, it never, it never made it to, it never made it off the page. We never even got to shoot it. Been, so. It sounds great. Sounds oh like my God. It was, awesome. I, I, w- I wish I could remember, you know, I, I, I hear I was doing this pilot for, and, and all I could do every day was just come home to my hotel and just obsess on and, and try to find this, the voice and, and the world that this, this guy who has this woman lives over his shoulder. And how he used to talk about his friends were like, who's that woman? You you're know, doing this pilot you're like, meanwhile, you're thinking, this other yeah, thing's way cooler. About, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking about yeah. Hill House and I'm supposed to be shooting a pilot for CBS. So that shows you where my mind was anyway. <laughs> um, after uh, after that, you, you guys, you moved on to do uh, an indie flake called Through the Glass Darkly. Um, uh, female director again, uh, Laura. Hey, I was going to say. Lauren Fash, yeah. yes. Fantastic. Her first film. Yes. And it won't her be her film. last. Trust yeah. me. That woman, she's going places. Yeah. Did that give you any did you did that give you pause? You know, the concept of working with a first time director where you're like, eh, I don't know. No, th- what gave me pause? Because it wasn't was, a big budget, you know what I mean? It wasn't yeah. kind of in the money that dreams. Yeah, you know what it was? I kinda had uh, it's funny, I'm glad you brought it, kind of booking it. I had sort of the 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 hush moment. I had it was, you know, a few years now it's gone by and I it, something the same pervasive feeling I had and, and the the feeling that was surrounding Mike Flanagan at the time of Hush was also what I was getting and hearing about Lauren Fash. You know, she was a first time director, but I could tell from the script and, and I could tell from, you know, the people that she assembled. And after having read it, I was like, oh, there's something definitely here. What gave me pause was that the character was just so fucking horrible. Like, it was just, you know, it's just, it was an ugly, ugly character. So I was like, Ugh, do I want to be this guy? Um, but, you know, that's our job as an actor. You, you've got to, you know, we, we show all, all facets of life and, and somebody, you know, has to take the reins on, on those kinds of characters. And I think... Yeah, that, I mean, you, uh, play, you play sort of this Norman Batesy kind of mama's yeah, boy, mama's boy, you know, yeah. who's like... Who's like a rapist and like yeah, well, it, it is daughter specifically, like yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, it's, it's pretty that's fucking when yucky. Yeah. yeah, and that's there's just it's zero redemption to somebody like that. And and you know how do you see? That's the problem is that you're learn you're taught and you learn as an actor to never judge your character. You can't because then you're doing a disservice to the story, and now you're not you're not you're not bringing that character fully to life because nobody, I mean nobody in the history of the world has ever cast themselves as the bad they don't think of themselves as the bad guy people do things from a perspective that they're that they're right and that they're noble and what they're doing is ju- at least justifiable their, their cause way. is the righteous cause yeah it's yeah, the righteous yeah, cause right i mean even as you know as you know, a horrible example like adolf hitler was coming from a place of like he was what his perspective was the right way which was you know patently false obviously but 
in order, you know, nobody ever thinks of themselves as the as the mustache twirling, you know, beard stroking, pet, you know, stroking the naked cat. Going, <laughs> you know, that's just that doesn't <laughs> yeah, happen. Yeah. People think, yeah, yeah, you know, people are perceived. What's happening right now in the world is, you know, the, the, he's he's claiming the path of righteousness. And so, when you play a horrible character like I did in Through the Glass Darkly, you have to find some justification for the behavior without judging. Right, and that's the challenge. Right. Yeah. But isn't it a thing like, you know, to, to not to like to say that that I'm not, I'm not saying it's bullshit, you know, what you're saying, but never judging a character. But I've always thought from the standpoint of like that it's more important. It's like I think it's impossible when you're playing a character like this not to have an initial judgment as a human being, because, of course, you're going to go. Yeah, this guy's a fucking bastard, evil person. But you have to be able to leave that behind or sort of forget that to portray that character. Do you think that's kind of more what it is? Yeah, well, that's what I mean. You, you, you can't judge a character in the performance. You, you'd certainly judge the actor. You, you know, the actor does. You, you would pick up the script. You're like, oh, this guy's fucking terrible. He's a horrible human being. <laughs> yeah, it's just yeah. then incumbent yeah. upon you, and you to execute the, the, in the execution of the role that you can't be saying, talking out of one side of your mouth and going, I'm so sorry I said that. I'm so, oh, God, this guy's so terrible. You got to commit. And, and, and those horrible things I have to say to my daughter and, and the girl who plays my daughter in that movie, you know, it just, it was awful. And, and I remember Lauren at one point we were shooting that scene and it was freezing cold. It's the middle of the night. And she wanted, she wanted, um, I think her name is Cece. I played my daughter, Cece Kelly. And she just wanted her to, you know, just to shake it off. And, you know, I know she's, she's very vulnerable. She's standing there in her underwear. She's being duct taped and, and, and yeah, she's, yeah, Scott, she's got to confess to the world that what, what you did to me, dad, and you did this and you abused me. And you see these bruises, she starts taking her clothes off to show the, everybody standing there that I was one that abused her. And, you know, my God, poor she was 15 years old or 16 year old at the time. And, you know, it was one of her first films. And, and so Lauren's like, I just need you to shake the tree. It's her coverage, but I need you to go up on this take. And she just pulled me aside. She goes, and you just need to say terrible things to her. It don't, you know, fuck the dialogue. Just go there and just and rattle the cage. And I did. And, and you know, of course, it, it, the girl, she's like, holy shit. I just said these horrible things. And it's immediately when she yelled cut, I looked and go, that was Lauren. And so the whole crew was like, that was Lauren's idea. She made me, you know, because everybody's like, holy shit, dude, what did she just say? That was awful. And I hugged Cece and her mom was, you know, at Video Village watching. And I looked at her mom. I was like, I'm so sorry. You know, that's, and she was like, oh my God, that was great. And they were lovely about it. Do you remember it. what you, you said? Know. Do you remember what you said? Oh, I can't repeat it. <laughs> I, I I said something to the effect that you you know you stupid little slut you love when daddy comes into your you know like it, it just it made yeah. it creepy because the idea was that that's what you realize that this character this horrible human being was going and raping his own daughter and that is just yeah. that is just I mean it still makes the hair on my arm stand thinking about it but none of that was in the dialogue so I just amped it up and just said you know terrible things like that and just belittled her and called her names and and. It, but again, it was all, none of it was in the dialogue and uh, it, it was just to elicit a reaction. That's all. It was just to, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, who was the, who was the great actress who uh, played uh, your mom? It was. Uh, yeah, uh, Judith. Um, okay. Um, I, uh, Ivy? Yes. Judith Ivy. Thank you. She was fantastic. Excellent. She's she was amazing. Great. Yeah, yeah, she was yeah, great. Yeah, she was no, great. She was, she was I enjoyed. loved watching the scenes you guys said because there was this this Norman Batesian kind of mother like kind of quality of this guy who's for just sure. sort of yeah know, for sure you know it, 
like I was thinking watching you do that because again, like you haven't gotten to play a lot of those parts, so it's like no, you know, just, yeah, it's and you wouldn't want to be typecast in that part, no, of course. But, yeah, uh, I, I don't, I didn't, you know, it's it's not great. I did I did a guest star on a show called Law and Order years ago, and he was a, also a serial rapist. You know, look, this shit comes up. I mean, I understand that that's part of you know entertainment and, and you know humanity. There's a need and a desire to see the darkest elements of, of humanity and so somebody has to betray them and that's why i told that story that anecdote and saying those terrible things as the the character to the other character you know i the actor would never i just and i it was so hard for me to let that wash over me and i immediately was looking at season i'm so sorry i was apologizing to everybody there so that character was just it was hard for me to kind of get rid of it and i i've i have since that movie there was a couple things that have come up for me that i've have passed on or turned down because it's like ah, i don't want to be that guy again all right midnight mass um so uh so midnight mass comes along so now you're kind of like officially part of the flanagan ensemble like henry thomas Samuel cowley and all these people kate c all these people you know who michael has mike has kind of worked into his you know his repertoire robert Lowe street yeah exactly yeah right yeah um like uh do you remember, like, you know, was it was it when you got the call from Flanagan to do Midnight Mass that you're like, all right, I'm in. Like, did did you have a moment like that where you're like, okay, cool, I'm part of this 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 ensemble now. I'm I'm one of Flanagan's guys. I had a moment where I, I, I almost I almost it almost brought me to tears. It was such it was such a cathartic to get that call, to be invited, to be told, and to, to hear it as it was unfolding. It's going to be seven episodes. It's the mayor of this small town. And I remember hearing about Midnight Mass three years ago when we were at a barbecue. And I told you, you know, Mike used to come over for dinner. Trevor was here. And I remember we were sitting there flipping a salmon on the, on the barbecue. And they were telling me the story of this young priest who shows up. He had had the idea. And now it was it's come to fruition. And here they were asking me to come and join the show. And I think it did. I mean, I, I you know it drew tears. I was like, I was so overwhelmed. I was walking my dogs at the time. I'll never forget it. I was up in this cul-de-sac and I walked in the house and looked at my wife and I was like, honey, I just, I just, I don't even, I couldn't even process. I remember just like, what just happened? So yeah, that was the culmination of a dream come true. I mean, I, I, I don't want to, you know, put too fine a point on that or, or hit that too bail too hard on the head. But I'd be lying to say that's not a dream come true to as an actor to get to be part, to get to uh, this kind of level and to, to get invited to a family like that, to the, the Flanimers, they call it, um, was twice life changing. You got that twice. Battlestar, you know, that yeah. I was just going to say that because Battlestar was meant to be around for two episodes and then they end up folding me into the cast. So you're right. That happened twice. And, and that's why I think I was able to recognize it the second time even more. And that's why, I, I mean, it literally elicited an emotional reaction from me was this is such a gift. And then of course it, what it does is it, the, it's the impetus to do the work. And I was like, I'm going to put everything I can into this character. Because it wasn't a big character. We you know, I mean, it was an ensemble piece, but it wasn't one of, you know, it wasn't, I wasn't Hamish or it wasn't Zach's role, you know. Um, I, I mean that from the most pedantic, you know, generic, like, sure, count sure. your lines on a page. And that's a bullshit. That's a tedious, you know, um, sort of unprofessional that, the, the way of number on the call sheet type exactly. of thing. Exactly. All that about. stuff yeah. doesn't matter. Because yeah, yeah. you're right. Because this was a true ensemble piece and we were all part and parcel to the island. I just knew that don't use that as an excuse like hey just go up there have a good time and you only have a couple scenes a couple lines here and there i was like absolutely not i'm going to go head first dive into the deep end of this pool and and 
discover everything I can about this character and do as much homework on this as I possibly could. You know, and it's 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 one of the things that you that I that I think about when I first saw it. Uh, both watching it as a fan of of Flanagan's, but then also as a you know as a fan of yours, but also because you're a friend. I was like, oh, this is you know, there's always the thing where you're watching a friend in something, and you ha- there's a little bit extra work there, uh, you know, to turn off yeah. that part. Where you're like, well, I know sure. this person. Like, right. it's, you know, it's one of those things like what they. Yeah, it's one of those things like, you know, I remember early on in my career, people were like, well, be careful about, you know, some of the heroes that you meet and stuff. It's like you meet people that you idolize and then all of a sudden now it's it's different because now they're humanized and you can't yeah. look at them the same way and you have to be careful about that. But I remember watching, it was so easy. I mean, it was because it didn't look like you and it didn't sound like you That's and it right. didn't move like you. So I was like, well, this doesn't, this doesn't look or sound or feel like Michael. So this, it, it was easy. Makes me so. You have no idea what that that is. Music to my ears, Kevin. When 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 you you've said that to me, and people have said that to me, that justifies all the hours, the countless hours and time spent breaking this thing and analyzing. That's all I wanted. It was funny. It, it, what you what I what came to realize is after the fact, I made myself almost unrecognizable to the point where people don't often associate I was even in the the show. And I was like, oh well, that's an interesting byproduct. Like if people go, oh, I love Midnight Mass. Oh, you in that? Yeah, I was like, wait, what role? Yeah, and so that's but I realized that's the company. That was that was that was mission accomplished then. Because that's exactly what I I I wanted I didn't want to I wanted to do something that was so far from me, Michael Trugo, the actor. And to hear you say that gives me great joy and and I appreciate that very much because that was that was the goal. That was the idea was that I wanted to disappear into a role in a way that I hadn't done before. Well, and you know, it's tricky. Like when I was watching the show and I think I love this. I love it. I love Midnight Mass. I, I've watched it through front to back twice. I'm sure I will many more times, you know, and, and, and you know, there's things about it that, that, uh, that I've, that I notice, you know, that I didn't notice the first time. And, you know, and, and then there's things, you know, that you'd like, you know, the first time I saw it, there was one thing that, that kind of where I was like, ah, I don't know how I feel, but that was there. I don't remember the actress's name. She's the one who plays. She has a lot of old age makeup on, and she she has yeah. to become young. And yeah, I, old Alex age makeup so. is mm-hmm. yes, and old age makeup is tough. It is so hard. And I remember be, it, watching the 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 show with Mike, my 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 husband, and that and she came on, and I was like, oh, why did they? Yeah, I was like, why did they do this? Like this is this show has had ever, gotten everything right. And here's this one thing where I was like, that's a oh, younger actress in a bunch of old age makeup. I don't understand. You know, and I was like, I was like, so she's going to, we're going to see her there either in flashbacks or there's going to be some reveal that she gets made young again. And, and that was that thing where I'm just like, that's sort of a drag, you know what I mean? And, and, and I wonder if like, and I'm not trying to be critical of the show or anything. No, but I wonder if, you know, do you think Mike, when he watches the show, thinks that, do you think he, do you think he was like, we just couldn't. We just couldn't find the way to like. What do you think is is his reaction? Because I'm sure he's heard it, right? Oh so. yeah, yeah, no, that's you're not. As I said, you're not the first to bring that up, and that's and that people did bump on that. And I I know that an immense amount of time and money was spent on the makeup effects, and there was it was hours of discussion, both off mostly offset, but even on set. We were there were days when we would pause production because 
when one of us finally got to set after our hour long, so you know, and, and she was the most extreme addition. We all had yeah, aged backwards, far. you know. Yeah, we had certain, and ours looked great, you know, because it was subtle. Like it was just the idea that we were all supposed to be playing fifty something, and then we, she was the one who was making the biggest charge from eighties yeah. down to twenties, or you know. So that was always going to be a challenge because that's just difficult to do when you have a young actress and somebody who's you know beautiful like Alex Esso and you're trying to age her up and make this this old woman. Um, it was a it was a point of discussion often, and there were times on set where they're like, "Nope, let's go back. We got to fix that." So I can't speak for Mike. I don't know if that's something that you know did. Would they go back and maybe try to use utilize a little CGI to enhance the practical? Those were all practical effects. You know, that's what I like about Mike. He tries to do as much practical as he can. And I love yeah, that. That's I love kind that of the old film. Yeah, 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 I love it. Do as much yeah. practical. So I, my hat's off for him for doing that. I, you know, I don't know. I, I think what happens is that people forgave it because they realize once the story, where it's going, because the, 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 the common, um, you know, the, the pervasive mentality there would be, why didn't you hire an act, older actress and then you hire somebody younger to play younger? But because the story was such that we were going to, you know, reduce age backwards. So you had to have the same actor be in both so that the payoff is good. And I think that's why people forgave it. Um, I don't know what the answer to that question. That's good. Is, is, is that something that bothers him? Is that something? I don't it's know. Like it's, it, you know. You know, in reading reviews and responses from fans whatever to the show, it's the most consistent criticism I've seen. Sure. And it's something I remember feeling myself watching it was just like, I think when a show is, is or a series or whatever, when something gets everything right, but then one thing happens that gives you that little more, you know what I mean? You, you go, oh, you know, and it's that little thing. And, and it's, you know, and, and I don't know what I would have done to how I would have handled it or what I would have done. I don't have the answer, but I wonder, you know, if in for, some for, ways that's, that's a in some ways that's a compliment, you know, it, to, to, to the uh, um, execution by Mike and, and the entire company, because if that's the one we're trying to find something wrong, it's the princess and the pea. You can stack up 40 mattresses, but no, there's that one little pea. I can still feel it. There's a little bump here because everything else was so good. So in, in some ways, uh, the optimist me looks at that and goes, hey, that we have to find something wrong with it, you know? When you set the bar that high, you know, if there's one thing that otherwise, you know, on something with a low bar, people would have gone, they would have been more forgiving of, There, there's going to be that knee-jerk. Oh, wait, that's 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 not quite at maybe the low, you know, and that, that's an interesting thing. To yeah, know. I don't know the answer. Um, how would you do that? How do you make that? How do we do that makeup? It was, do you use CGI like Benjamin Button? Do you like... Yeah, it's tough, you know, and, and a lot of filmmakers, I've some very big movies have had that that problem. I mean, I remember watching back in the day, Pearl Harbor, you know what I mean? Huge budget movie. And John Voight has the worst old age makeup in <laughs> yeah, that movie. Exactly. It's terrible. Yeah. You know, he they give her like this Jay Leno chin and it's, you can see the lines of the prosthetic. I'm just, I remember watching it and being like, come on guys, this is, you have all more money than God to make this movie. Why did they let that and get they through? And they still couldn't get it. I would say, though, uh, by and large, I will defend the the uh, the makeup departments and and makeup effects on. Oh my God, on the makeup is brilliant on Minimum. They were I mean, that's the thing amazing. I was going to say to you is like your character, like I couldn't, like I knew you were wearing prosthetics because I know what you look like, but I could not tell that you were wearing prosthetics. And I'm a filmmaker, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I've worked with prosthetics. I know what that looks like. Exactly. So, I, I mean, they, they really did. They, I think they knocked it out of the park. And the monster, come on, the monster was oh, amazing. Like, you, uh, that was epic. 
Yeah, I remember um, reading in an interview that uh, um, Claude Rains, who played the Invisible Man, uh, talking about mm. how, as an actor, uh, people assumed that, that it would be so limiting to be covered in these bandages and not be able to use his face. And he said, no, it's the opposite. It's so freeing. Because you're not so you anymore. Free. You don't. You don't look yeah, back and exactly. see you. You're seeing. It's, exactly it's right. not, You're you're gone. Yep. Um, and that's I my think favorite that's, thing you know, about this business. Yeah. And the voice. You know, I I I I loved hearing what you did with your voice because yeah. first I was like, okay, you've done this to sort of age yourself, but then there was that moment where we find out what had happened to your daughter, and mm -hmm. that you find her, and she's been shot, and you let out this horrible scream, and you know, I I remember turning to to my husband and saying, oh. That's why he he's... damaged his vocal cords. What a what a cool choice <laughs> for Trooper to make. And I grabbed so my great. phone and I and I and I texted you and I was like, I have something I need to talk to you about. That's it was right. Thing where, That's what it was. Like... Yeah, I remember you saying, I ask you something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I was a great like, observation, what observation, Kevin? It was yeah. It was such a thing where I was like, these, these, this this is the texture that you know, and an audience is watching something that they might not pick up on consciously, but it's there and it creates these characters and it makes this world and it helps us live in it and and you know and, and you can't necessarily pinpoint it and and for me it was like I didn't matter if that was the case if that was the reason you had done that for me right. it was That's and great. I brought that to That's my great. experience of watching you in the in the show. I just um, wanted. I love that you the fact that you picked out that there was a tone change and there was a difference in the timbre of my voice and the cadence of my voice. That's all, again, that gives me great joy because that's all, was all by design. And, and, and you and all you be can pull it sound, off. You didn't just sound older though. In your voice, and the change in your voice sounded like someone who had, who had been through great pain, who had, yeah. who had suffered through something. That's and exactly to be able to do right. that with a change in voice. I thought was just brilliant. Was wow, wonderful. man! Thank you. So I, I don't, I don't know how to respond to that other than to say thank you. And I, I, I just, it's hard. It's, it's. I don't know. It's hard. I don't even know how to react to that because, uh, you know, that's what you, that's what you hope to achieve as, as an actor, as an artist. You want somebody to, to pick up those subtleties, and go, wow, man, that really moved me for that reason and and to hear you say that back it, it it you have no idea how how much that means to me so i appreciate that i think it's the difference between a good performance and a great performance uh to doing making decisions and choices that maybe the audience won't even know that they've picked up on but that changes the way they see and perceive that character i think that truly is the difference between a good and a great performance absolutely that's yeah, yeah. well that makes me happy and it's funny too because you know when i was watching the you know, Flanagan has like he he writes a lot of great monologues. You know what I mean? He, there's a lot of you know, and a lot of a lot of writers and directors monologues can be scary territory for sure because it's very easy for a monologue to turn into that thing where you're like, oh, for Christ's sake, like you know, a character's been talking for seven minutes and you're like, somebody would have interrupted this guy by now. Like monologues are and they're very and they're, they can have a theatricality to it that feels they can take you out of the reality of the thing and. But Flanagan is 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 so good at those monologues, you know what I mean? And like, you know, there's scenes in in Midnight Mass where these where characters just talking, and that's all they're doing for like these long stretches. Long, you know yeah, what I mean? Nine yeah, pages. like yeah. yeah, right. Like that scene with with Zach Gilford and um, it was Hugo, Hamish. right? Where they're oh yeah. You remember with like all oh, the scenes with Hamish and and, and no, and you're, Zach, talking, you're talking about Kate and, and Zach where they're talking about the, the existential conversation about what happens when yeah. you die. Yeah, you think that one half goes, of that, and then it's like, what do you think? And like, well, let me show you and what then, I think. <laughs> yeah. like, oh shit, we're only and, halfway through this scene. Yeah, 
that's risky man i remember thinking when i saw that i was like flanagan's taking a gamble here because if we don't really resonate with what they're talking about this is this is gonna feel long to people yeah they're gonna get bothered they're gonna be like oh shut up like and it you know the fact that that doesn't happen um you know, and if it does happen, I think it's the right people are peeling off for that. It's probably not for them anyway. That's right. Yeah, you know? Exactly. And when, yeah, it's no loss because, yeah, that's just, this wasn't for you. Then. But if you just came for a monster movie, you're not... Then, that's then not you, what came, you, you come not to the wrong place. Is. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, and it, it was one of those things, too, where I was, like, thinking, like, you know, you're watching that scene that we talked about with, with Joe Colley's body with Samantha Sloan, where, where she's just ripping in on you, you know what I mean? And you're, you're having to spend so much of that scene sort of reacting. And Samantha Sloan, she's wonderful in that scene. I mean, she's oh really, God, she's, she's so really good. kind of like, she's, she's terrifying. Yeah. The funny thing to me about when I think of that show is this, the biggest villain to me of that piece is her character. Yeah, for sure. For me, yeah, personally, like yeah, that's no the character I think she's, of as being the villain. most sinister character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's, totally. She, I think because she tapped into something that, that people have all experienced. She's actually she, people, everybody knows somebody like her. If anybody's ever been in Catholic school, you definitely know somebody like her. <laughs> well, and, I th- and I think there's intention behind the malice in her character. You know yeah, what I mean? The there's, there's, she, she's, she's, there's, there's. She's Machiavellian. She does. She does mean harm to some of the people that she's that she's talking to. Yeah. And it's masked through this veil of, of religious religious righteousness you know, yeah. and righteousness. And yeah. yeah, but it's you know really it's just a, you know a, a mean spirited person. Yeah. Um, exactly. You know, and it was curious to me. Like I was listening to a a a a, a review for the show. Um, it was on another podcast, and they were one of the the. The guys on on this particular podcast was was flustered with Flanagan that that he said I kind of it kind of annoys me though that that Flanagan doesn't come down on one side or the other about what he's saying about religion here mm. he's just sort of asking a bunch of questions but we don't know what he thinks and I was like wait a minute since when did that become a director's responsibility exactly exactly like, I I actually applause him applaud him for not bringing in that that wasn't the point the point is for you you know that he just i love that he presents both sides that's to me is that's great storytelling i think it could work if flanagan had you know something he wanted to say about Made that an and get a decisive religion or an indictment yeah, of, yeah sure of course. why not that could that could work but that's not what he was doing and we get that a lot you know I mean? a lot of people make stuff you know that you know oliver stone was very opinionated in, in his filmmaking i mean there's yeah. there's definitely you know and, and there's nothing wrong with that and that's and that's great i just thought that mike takes the intellectual high road by going i'm going to give you i'm going to present both sides he actually makes a really good case for religion and that's what i thought was great he doesn't paint all of catholicism and religious fanatics and, and as a fringe society like no no that story about the mouse about you know that he, that zach and hamish are talking about when the you know the, he's he resurrected the mouse he goes well you just went to the store and bought a new one he goes yeah but what's the difference you believed yeah. that 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 the mouse had you know so that that's what belief is and i was like that's such yeah. a and that's a, that was a great parable about you know about religion and and that's what I think Mike does really well. He doesn't, he wasn't just there breaking religion over the coals and, you know, no. and, and saber rattling for like, oh, see, so he, he was like, hey man, there's an argument to be made for both sides. Well, and I, I remember seeing a video of uh, the the incredible, the amazing, one of my heroes in the show business, Ricky Gervais, yeah. talking about the show. And, and of course, you know, he loved, he loved the, yeah, just love the show. He I gave know. it this glowing endorsement, and yeah. I thought if Ricky Gervais, who is a staunch atheist, yes, like that's something he's not unclear about, <laughs> could all. see what 
Mike Flanagan was trying to talk about with that show. Yep. Then someone else who's going, well, he should have just come down when it probably just wasn't for them. That's right. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. I hate to do that thing where it's like, well, they didn't get it because I think that's condescending. But in this case, I'm just going to do it. Anyway. Maybe they just didn't get it. Maybe. Maybe. Or like you said, they they were they were tuning in to see a monster movie. They were tuning in to see horror. And they're like, what's all this talking, philosophical, esoteric bullshit, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, that's cool. If you want to go, you know, watch uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 16 you know, or whatever, wherever the number they're on. or yeah, yeah. And, and because there's a place for that. And those are great. And that, But there's room for everything. Mike Bruce wasn't making yeah. that. This show wasn't that. This show was was much more um, intellectual. I mean, that's not that's not fair. Cerebral to say. I mean, and cerebral, uh, yeah. Emotional I mean, you know, and yeah. Yeah, it was it was yeah, and that's that's some people were like just weren't interested in that, and that's okay. That's fine. That's fine. Yeah, that's right. And it's like you know, in that case, you know, Netflix has lots of options. You know, so flick over to whatever else. No problem. Um, you know, I mean, I mean, the show came out, if I'm not mistaken, on the same time as Squid Game, right? Yeah, the same day. Yeah, yeah, that was a bittersweet. Oh, same day. Yeah. Oh shit. I think, I think they both dropped <laughs> on September twenty fourth. Like... Yeah. Were yeah. you guys like, oh, for fuck's sake? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, somebody can research that. It, may, it was it was definitely around the same time. I think it was the same. I know we dropped on September 24th, and I believe Squid Games at the same time. And talk about having your thunder. <laughs> somebody stealing your thunder, kicking your ball over the fence. It was like, oh, shit. And, but you, you, know, know. What's, you know what's weird to me about that is, like, with Netflix, like, it's not time slots. So what stops someone from just watching Squid Game and then going, okay, now I'll watch the exactly. Night Pass? Like they, exactly. were, they weren't up against each other the way it used to be when it was, like, both shows are on at 8 o'clock. It's primetime competition. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, and it wasn't Netflix, that. It was just that you don't have that. Yeah, you don't have that. But Squid, Games was just, Squid Games was just more um, accessible. You know, it was... It, it was more yeah. salacious, right? It was like, it was so yeah, horrible. Whereas Midnight Mass was a more of a, a studied, learned, slow burn, intellectual, and you cerebral. Know what's funny? What's yeah, that? I've never watched it. So there you go. Oh, um, is that right? Okay. I've Good never seen Squid Game. I, I was watching Midnight Mass. <laughs> Good for you. Um, <laughs> Um, and it's one of those things too. It's like I watching Midnight Mass. It got me to think of something like for me as an actor, like, or sorry, as a director, um, and for you as an actor, like, um, you know, Mike has to like he he does these big ensemble casts. That must come with unique challenges. I've never really I I did one film that that was sort of ensemble-y, and it did come with a lot of extra challenges. And and when you're working, because when you're juggling a lot of characters and they have a lot of, you know, you, they're not they're not people with one or two lines. That's a lot that you have to kind of hold on to and carry forward and be consistent with in your head as a director. And you know, you plan and you prepare, but but some of it has just got to happen on the fly. Like, do you think Flanagan sort of did he? Did you notice any sort of anything in his preparation or anything in his approach where you're like, oh, that's part of how he keeps himself on the level when he's balancing all of this? Do I? Do I, do I mean, did I notice his process, or did I see something that I could pinpoint? Yeah, as like last? were you like, oh, okay, that's that's you know that's how he helps himself, you know, keep track of what he's doing with all these characters with this big cast with this big group of characters. Uh, he, he's like, the first director I've ever worked with in either medium of film or television in which with the call sheet and the sides for the next day's work attached to the back of that is the call is the shot list something right. that's usually only shared with the camera department and maybe a few other department heads the actual shot list every scene there's 12 setups in a scene first one is going to be a, a, a wide two on on you guys the next one's gonna be a raking over the you know we're doing a french over next one's going to be her close up and then we're going to your and that comes with your script or with your sides and your call sheet 
So what he does is that that he maps out everything in advance. He knows exactly what he's what he's getting, which most directors do. They know, you know, they, sometimes you on the fly will put a camera here, but for him, it's it's choreographed, and he shares that with the actors and the entire crew, so that we just where everybody's on the same page immediately, and he expects you to see, to look at that and know that, and it gives you as an actor a lot of of. Um, information and it's great to know where you you know if you have something that might be extremely emotional or an intense scene you get to know where you are and where where the cameras are going to be in advance but i i just think mike's that's that's an indication of mike's level of preparation he is his preparation is is, is second to none and that's all that he asks and i remember that was when you're in this family and you get invited into this world mike's and wonderful, loving, easy human being to get along with. But his one ask and his one demand of his cast and crew is that you be prepared, you you be prepared for, to go to work that day. And that doesn't mean as an actor, you better, you know, if you mess up a line, you better have your lines. That doesn't, that's not what I'm talking about. You just know what you're coming today's work. You know what we're shooting. And you know what the scene's about. You know where we are in the story. That's because he's done so much work. That's what he demands of the people around him. And what happens, that's not a problem because he he inspires you to want to be on the same page. Sets that tone. For he everybody. sets the tone, yeah. And that's all. And he'll say, that's all I ask. I just want, I don't, you never want to get this. Somebody just shows up casually and just putting their cigarette like, what are we doing today? What's the, oh, is this that long scene? You know, like, duh, if there's that kind of casual bullshitty, I'm just kind of show up, stand on my mark and, and phone it in, you, they won't be invited back. They might get through the rest of the day, the rest of the shoot, the rest of the, the series, but they won't be coming back. And that's and that's all he asks is, uh, he goes, you know, he puts his his heart and blood and sweat and tears into it and he goes, and that's all I ask in return. And it's, it's, not, it's not pulling teeth. Everybody's on the same page. So I see his level of preparation as as um, is sort of the stalwart, and it is the it's the the beacon on set. Everybody wants to come up to his level of, of enthusiasm because you don't see him burning out. You don't see him, uh, uh, you know, he's never his shoulders are never shrugged forward, head down. He doesn't ever look defeated. And as long as his energy and enthusiasm is up, it's infectious. Everybody's is. I remember a producer I was working for once saying to me, uh, you know, this is pretty young in my career, maybe, you know, I wasn't juggling things properly. Somebody said to me, um, uh, you know, it doesn't, you're worrying too much about whether the actors like you. It's not, it doesn't matter if the actors like you. And I've never thought that that was true. I don't think that's true. I don't think, I don't think, um, it is irrelevant whether or not. I think people work harder for someone that they care oh, for definitely. in the context of the of being in the trenches together. You know, definitely. I can see. I, I understand the context of that that um, that statement. In that, you know, you have a job to do. They have a job to. We just need you to get it done. So I can see why somebody would say that because you're right. You don't have to go. You don't have to be friends. You're not going to you know share dinner with these people. You just have to go to work, and that might be true. And that can be said for yeah for for any line of work. But you're right. It's it's if you actually like these people, then the the the, the atmosphere on set is exponentially better. Because we just enjoy yeah, each other's company. The whole experience coming. has yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah nobody's yeah. nobody's afraid. And I, I don't want this to come up wrong. Nobody's afraid of Mike. And that's you're supposed to be afraid of the director. I mean, he's the, he's the man in charge. Nobody doubts that he's in charge. But he is he's he's so effusive and so and he's, he's got a razor sharp wit he's funny 
you just, you never like, oh, fuck, here comes a director. You know, there's never that like, uh-oh, here comes the boss. It's like, yeah, what's up, man? He's just fun. He comes and hangs out in the green room with us. We, when they're, you know, they're lighting a shot and he gets five minutes to break away. He'll pull up a chair and he's like, hey, you guys, I got to tell you this story. And he tells a great story. He's just, you want to be around him and he wants to be around everybody else. So that's an interesting quote. I understand the context of somebody saying, you don't have to be friends. You just need to get the job done. But it's certainly, I do too. Yes. It certainly makes sense. If you're a shooting... You know, if you come on a TV show, an episodic show, and you're shooting one episode, like, yeah, I think that's true. Because the director's role in something like that is often very much, you're like a technician, practically. Right, that's the tech context. Yeah. yeah. If I'm doing an independent feature, though, or I'm doing something that's like, I, you know, this is my baby, then I want to, I want to, like, have that with my team, with my, with the people I work with. And I've worked with a lot of the same people over and over again, because it gives you a sense of, not just safety, but a sense of uh, that you could, it, there's a shorthand you develop and it makes everything easier and, and faster. You know, you can turn to someone you worked with and go, you hey, remember when we did this thing? Remember that thing? One of those. And they go, got yeah. it. Like, you, you exactly don't get that it, when you're, you know what I mean? That is so true, man. Mike, definitely. Yeah, we had that shorthand on the set. There is definitely that. And and yeah, it comes through and it shows and it's, and it. And it, ultimately it, it, it lands on the screen. The product is better because and you've of got, it. you've got, what, uh, House of Usher coming up with, with Mike sure do. soon too, right? Yeah, they're right now they are you, in week six, I think, or week five. They started uh, 31st of January, and my stuff, I go up in April to go shoot my part. Right. It's one can you tell, big what can you, movie. What can you tell me about it? God, what can I tell you about it? Um, I can tell you this. It's called The Fall of the House of Usher, obviously because it's inspired by Edgar Allan Poe. It is an amalgamation of at least four or five Edgar Allan Poe short stories, the title obviously of which is The Fall of the House of Usher, um, but it incorporates The Black Cat, The Cask of Amontillado, it incorporates uh, The Pendulum. So what Mike has done is he's taken these works of Edgar Allan Poe and he's crafted a modern day narrative and has found a way to interweave the stories and the themes of those classic tales into one long eight episode journey one long movie and the the product the end the, the result the script the story is absolutely if midnight mass was a beautiful piece of classical music house of usher is fucking punk rock it's gonna be right <laughs> it's heavy metal dude it is it is gonna move at a pace you talked about those people who tuned in and wanted to see a horror movie you know they were they were expecting Usher is going to be a carnival ride. It is crazy. And is it, is it, is it, is it, is it another Flanagan ensemble piece? Are we getting some? Yep, stuff? absolutely. Uh, almost 90% of the cast of Midnight Mass is back. And, and in Fra addition Frank to, Langella yeah, along this time. Frank Langella, Mary McDonald, Mark McDonald. Mark Hamill. Uh, yeah. Carla wow. Lumley, um, what a cast. Jeez. Carla Gugina is back. Um, yeah. So it is so exciting. It is uh, it is incredible to me how Mike took the works and the themes and the stories and the characters and crafted a narrative based on these amazing stories by Edgar Allan Poe and has turned it into a modern day horror series. And man, it will not disappoint. I just I I I, I can't. I feel like that guy who's on the talk show is like I'm so excited. I, I, this I'm not being hyperbolic and I'm not bullshitting you. 
this is one of the most exciting things I've ever gotten to even say I'm associated with. I mean, even in no matter what my capacity is, just to be a part of this is uh, I'm, I'm floored. I cannot wait for the world to see this one. It's can you tell us anything about your about your role or your character? I can tell you this: um, it's it, where you know the whole thing has been written. They're shooting in uh, block shoots, a term they call block shooting, where they might shoot pieces of episode five, then they go back to episode two, and then you shoot something from episode seven and then episode one. Conventional television, you shoot episode one in eight or ten days, and then you do episode two, and then you do you know this one. The whole thing has been written, so we're shooting it like a movie. My character exists in a storyline. In a in a uh, um, a period in a in the in the past in 1979, so the, the show has um, it takes place in in present day 2022, but it also a lot of the story lives in flashbacks in in an alternate story of uh, timeline in 1979. So I play heavily in the uh, in the past storyline. Thank you so much for doing oh the show. God. It's been I've loved talking with you, man. Really great to just reminisce and to get Me a too. chance to just, you know, dissect your wonderful career and all the great stuff that you've done. And I can't wait to see more of it and get back on set with you myself. It's going to be, dude. you know. You say when, brother. And thank you for this because you you actually walked me down memory lane and, and took me to places I've shows and brought up subjects I've forgotten about. You know, not forgotten about, but I just haven't thought about in a long time. So this has actually been a real treat for me, too. I've never really actually done this chronologically like that and walked through some of the, the my past projects. So that was that was really fun for me. You've been listening to Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts with host and filmmaker Kevin Lane. Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts was created by Kevin Lane and produced by Cindy McLean. Production engineering provided by Jaden Bozon. The Spill Your Guts theme and incidental music was created by composer Mike Haddon. Original artwork, generously provided by Matthew Terrian. Our supervising producer is Jason Hill. For exclusive bonus content, giveaways, and contests, be sure to subscribe to our Patreon account at www.patreon.com forward slash spillyourguts. All one word. Spill Your Guts is only made possible by our supporters and listeners like you. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy ad-free versions of Kevin's conversations with some of horror culture's titans of terror, as well as the many hours of bonus content, consider subscribing to our channel. But that's not the only way you can support what we do. If you like what you hear and you want more, get the word out to your friends, your family, random people on the street, retail cashiers, unattended babies, the hot guy you work with, on-duty members of law enforcement, anyone with a pair of ears and a taste for the guts and gore of horror. This has been Kevin Lane's Spill Your Guts. Thanks for listening.